Oh, okay. All I wanted to discuss this with you further. So when I asked you the question about Jaws. Oh, yeah. About like any movie. I, I think what your point is, it being comparable to it was was good. I'm just trying to figure out like, because Jaws was like a worldwide phenomenon. Uh-huh. Whereas I think it wasn't that popular. The whole reason that it, um, I think, was even mainstream is that it wasn't like initially popular when it came out as the movie, but they showed it on TV a lot. Did they? Yeah. And so that's where I remember first seeing it was on TV. So that's like, of course, that makes a whole you know shit ton of people afraid of clowns. But I think that's more of just like a U.S. thing. Whereas I think like Jaws because of being like considered a blockbuster and everything, I'm pretty sure it did go international. Well, and there has to be a situation for a clown to be in. All there has to be for Jaws is just water. That's what I'm saying. So like from a psychological standpoint, I'm wondering if like, of course it's nothing. Somebody's going to go and report that they have a fear of water because they went and saw this movie and everything. I'm just wondering if like across the board, like places saw like reductions in like, beachgoers and all that kind of stuff within like I'm I'm assuming that thing that movie damaged probably a lot of tourism. Yeah, like they weren't selling out and it probably in like lake areas too. They're like, we're not selling all the cabins around the lake. Why? And they're like, Jaws, it's like it's a fucking lake. Why would there be a shark here? It doesn't matter. Like it's just it's not a logical thing. One thing that I was surprised by too, and I think I heard this a couple weeks ago, um Ben Schwartz, the actor, was doing an interview on KFC radio. Mm-hmm. He said that part of the reason why we don't see Jaws so much in the movie, like until the end, is because the animatronic or the animatronic shark broke. Yeah, Bruce. Like it, it broke like two weeks into filming. Yeah. So he had to like go through and renegotiate the script as far as like just not being able to show him. There was a lot of issues. I think that's what also delayed like the production on it longer than it, you know, had to be and everything was that they had the thing kept fucking breaking down. So they would have it like on its barge that was like submerged like out of the water and it's literally <laughs> mm-hmm. just like the first third of it that's supposed to look like the shark. And then the rest of it has like the dorsal fin, but then it's just like open like metal structure and shit. <laughs> so you just see like it comes out and the dorsal fin just hanging it off. It looks the about right like and- you would expect taking like the tour ride at Universal Studios, oh, yeah. the Jaws yep, part. Yeah. That's like the technology they had to to create that. Yeah, it's super interesting to think about those I guess it's called what, mass hysteria or some shit like that. Yeah. That's kind of what the phenomenon's called. Mm-hmm. But even just with us <coughs> talking about it, because after I went on my dinosaur escapade with Jurassic Park I was really trying to think about it, and I don't really know. I mean, there's nothing, like, there's no movies that do that in the opposite direction. It's only, like, fear-based shit. Like, there's nothing that you see in a movie, and you're just like, cool, all right. I'm 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 generally just cool with whatever that is. Like, something that, like, lends, like, a hopeful optimism mm-hmm. type. Yeah, that's not going to sell a lot of tickets. It's not, but it's kind of a good way to do things. I mean, you... I don't know. I, I don't really know how to elaborate kind of like when they do do good things, I guess, like that shitty motorcycle movie Wild Hogs with like Travolta mm-hmm. and Tim Allen mm-hmm. and all that. Excuse me. I think that painted like small bands of biker gangs in a good light, but then it's also like the bigger bands of biker gangs are worse. Like, do you think, I don't think bikers need like a 
bad boy movie to try to cement their image. I think bikers are just kind of bad people anyway. Yeah, I think that that just kind of... Not all bikers are bad people, but anybody that's in a biker gang is usually probably not a good person. Yeah, that's that's probably a fair assessment. Um, They don't get a lot of shit either, which bugs me. Have you ever seen, like, the news reports about the shootouts that they just have on, like, the Vegas freeway between, like... Oh, yeah, or, like, inside casinos and shit? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That shit happens uh, quite frequently, but we usually just hear about black people gang warfare Mm -hmm. instead of, like... That's an occupational hazard of being in a biker gang, man. They don't feel like they need to report that. That just goes with the territory. Oh, you're in a biker gang? You've probably been in several shootouts. Yeah, and that's... It feels like every once in a while there was one that happened maybe two or three years ago, like, on the patio of a restaurant. Yeah, it was... It It looked like a fucking, like, Jimmy Buffett's, uh-huh. like... <laughs> it was Margarita Bay like, Cafe shit. or some shit like that, yeah. And it just happens, and they're just cool with it. But bikers, I think, probably, like, when they see themselves on the silver screen in a bad light, they're probably like, that's yeah, accurate. Yeah. Like, might be different. But other than that, there's no, like, movies that really instill fear. There's shit like Insidious and different things, mm-hmm. but none of that's logical. Like, yes. sharks, sharks, logical. Clowns, Clowns are illogical. Logical. Well, thanks to, what were you saying, uh, John Wayne Gacy? Yeah, John Wayne that, Gacy that made it That lended some actual, like, credibility to... Clowns being psychopaths or something like that. And KFC, because he also managed KFCs. So the clown true. that manages KFC, both both scary and or scary prospects. Speaking of KFC, I think I can move this into this. <laughs> Do you know who I believe would have loved KFC had he spent more time in the States? You don't think when do you think KFC was made? Ooh, in like a chain form? Yeah. Because it definitely wasn't over in London by 1965, no. but I'd like to think that Winston made a stop and met the Colonel. I think the Colonel and Winston would get he along was, pretty well. Winston was in America for a little while. Yeah. So I wouldn't be surprised if in one form or another he had, you know, something similar to KFC. Yeah, or even fried chicken. Yeah. He's like, you guys got fish and chips. They're like, motherfucker, we got something even better. You guys fry fish? We just decided to fry chickens. <laughs> yeah. You cut it up? Sometimes. Uh-huh. Sometimes not. Sometimes we just throw the whole bitch mm-hmm. in there. So we're talking Winston goddamn Churchill. Or his... What was his legal name? Was Winston... It was like Rupert or something. He had a R- Raymond something. He had a real bad middle name. Uh, Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. Spencer, I think, was the one that I heard. Don't like it. I love this guy. This guy prefaces this with this guy is human, so he's going to have some faults. But overall, probably one of the most, I don't know, crucial people within the last couple centuries to have existed, not only politically and everything like that, but just overall. I He's... I don't know really how many people think about this word when it comes to like trying to describe a human Winston Churchill is just undeniable like the man it doesn't like matter a fucking L'Oreal commercial be undeniable <laughs> he could have been he didn't have any hair so L'Oreal wouldn't have done any good for him or a makeup commercial no yeah but he is it makeup you probably it might be I don't know but he 
he just, it didn't matter how many times he fucked up. He was like the ultimate, he was the epitome of get knocked down four times, get up five or whatever that saying is like, he just, he never stopped doing what he wanted to do until he finally achieved what he did. He learned from his mistakes for the most part. He ran into some failures, but every time it was a failure, it was like he just escaped and did something else. In, in a weird way, like I think when he would go do something after he had been failed or lost whatever position he was in, it may have seemed like he was running from it, but in a weird way, he went to gain experience that he lacked and kind of was the reason. Like, we'll, we'll get into that kind of stuff, like yeah. specific examples as weird as that sounds. Um, so Winston Churchill was born November 30th, 1874 in Oxfordshire, Blenheim, in Oxfordshire, and then the place where his family estate was, was, is it Blenheim? Blenheim? Blenheim Palace. So, already starting off, he's born into an estate and a palace. That sounds like a pretty swanky birth. Well, his his parentage was, his father was um, English, and was a direct descendant of the first, the first Duke of Marlborough. On his dad's side, and then his mother was actually um, American. So there was his dad, apparently, or his grandpa was the Duke of Sigs. Yes, Duke Marlboros, spelled differently. I think is Marlboro man. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it comes from that, and they just got rid of the U G H. I don't know. We tend to do that with stuff. Um, but yeah, so apparently there was this big kind of like craze in like the nineteen, or sorry, not the nineteen, but like sometime in like eighteen fifties. Late 19th century. Something like that, where it was, like, really fashionable for members of, like, the British royal family, but, like, the outliers, like the Duke and, you know, different places, to, like, marry their um, sons to wealthy American businessmen's daughters. Like, it was something, it was, like, a trend or something, and so that's kind of where um, Randolph, his dad, and then his mom, Jenny Jerome... Had had been arranged. It's a good move. I mean, if you're trying to court business from an up and coming country and try to bring that money back mm-hmm. into your country, it only makes sense to form business practices through marriage. That well, yeah, way. and it it's the same thing as like how do you establish like a monarchy and everything or leadership? You would intermarry essentially like the royal lineages. Uh-huh. From a business standpoint, it, it doesn't seem any different. Like, oh, you're a steel magnate. I'm a businessman in this. Why don't we go ahead and like. Reminds me off of uh, Wedding Crashers. It was like the Lodges and the <laughs> what's their last name? It's Sack Lodge and oh, the Clarys and the Lodges. Yeah. Two great American families. Uh, and as I think we talked about last week, that's where we get into the weird interbreeding, which this wasn't really an issue because we're talking about completely different countries here. There's no way that Jenny Jerome and Lord Randolph's other family members are going to start fucking like this isn't a royals, a royal to royal switch. Yes. This is like a royal to commoner to create kind of a. This is Harry bringing in Meghan Markle, yeah. the American like he was doing it back. So Churchill's got some got some. Street cred on that. The alliteration to that, Jenny Jerome and Meghan Markle, don't like it. Feels weird. You were even mentioning this, like when you heard him talk, it wasn't like a thick British accent. I think I figured that out. Okay. And I think there was a time when they used a certain microphone mm-hmm. to where you almost, because a lot of the times when you hear like old timey voices, 
it's always the projection and the talking like this and the the really quick like it's almost like everybody they talk has like this. this. Yeah, here's the news update. They have yeah. like the same accent as far as like across the board mm-hmm. or the same speaking cadence. And I think that that had something to do with the microphones. Like that was the clearest way that they would be picked up. Maybe that was like how that. they actually like if you took like classes on speeches and stuff like that, that it was something like a universal way that they're like this is how people talk when they're being an orator. Or something like that. Like, they talk in this cadence, and you have to learn to talk like this. It's the most appealing way to have people hear you, and they're more likely to agree with you. There had to be something to that. Well, it's almost like an accent among itself. Because you couldn't come in there with, like, a Cockney accent, but like, oh, you lot. Like, shut the fuck up and listen here. This guy named Hitler, (laughs) he's up to no good. You couldn't, like, fucking talk like that and have anyone want to side with you. Uh, Very true. You wanted to be a, a good order. And he... I don't really know how to describe like his childhood because his childhood's the saddest shit ever. And I think unfortunately he kind of pushed that onto his own kids because from a very young age, his dad just didn't really care to have him around. Like it was almost like his kids were more of a matter of convenience Mm -hmm. and I didn't really get into like how many brothers and sisters he had, but I got to wonder if it was just Winston himself or if it was just the children as a whole were all treated that way. I think it probably would have been a children as a whole were treated that way. He was the head, like the, you know, the oldest boy. So he was going to be the head of the household essentially after their dad left. But yeah, he didn't have a good relationship. I think he wishes he wouldn't have ended up doing that. It's ironic because then he had that same kind of relationship. He perpetuated with like one of his that sons. same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, what did, what did, how did they term it? He was like a servant to the country first and foremost and like a, husband and a father like second or some shit like that well and if you have an arranged marriage with jenny there's a chance that that's no, I'm gonna in, be a, i'm in winston yeah but as far as like because he even had a, a tough relationship with his mother too yeah and it seems like they might have done a little bit better later on because she ends up sending after him a father lot of, was gone yeah. a lot of the books and shit like uh-huh. that that he wanted but i i have to assume that that's sort of a loveless marriage whereas winston on the other hand him and Clementine were like peas and carrots. Like he really loved that lady and took a lot of, for the fact that he didn't take a lot of advice from anybody. Uh-huh. And yes, most of the stuff that Clemmy was giving him wasn't political, but he really like, she had his ear. They were a true kind of a team. And oh, yeah, things. there's something to be said about, you know, like Eleanor Roosevelt to FDR mm-hmm. and everything. I think that he was the top. She was the bottom. Yeah, exactly. She was the legs of the presidency. Mm-hmm. Did you hear about Winston and Teddy meeting? The initial meeting didn't go well, right? No, no, no. Okay, well, that was Teddy, though. That wasn't FDR. No, it wasn't. But when they met, we know Teddy is like the rough rider, the guy that goes out there and shoots yeah, bears and, and, and shit Yeah, in the Amazon and all that kind of shit, yeah. And they said that when Winston and Teddy met each other for the first time, they really didn't get along well. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like a shock. Because the aides to Teddy and the aides to Winston were like, they're just the same person. That's what I was going <laughs> to say. That's what it ended up being is they were too much alike. Yeah. They, to they get were along. too like there was no There was no take and give and take between their personalities. It was uh-huh. yeah, too similar. And you have to imagine when Teddy's like, I shot a bear. He's like, yeah, well, I shot 15 men in battle. Like yeah. just back and forth. They just mm-hmm. were trying to one up each other the whole entire time, which I'm sure they had a mutual respect because I know that Churchill <laughs> had a pretty Good relationship with FDR, it seemed like. Uh, dumb question. Um, FDR and Teddy were related, right, brothers? Not brothers. Cousins? Um, we'll find this out now. 
That right. should be an American question that I should know, I feel like, but... Roosevelt and FDR. Growing up, though, he really... Like, he wasn't the smartest... He wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. He didn't always enjoy school. Two different... Two distantly related branches of the family. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, uh, his... Oh, Theodore Roosevelt and his fifth cousin. Uh, so, not even really close. Damn. That's nuts. But he didn't get along well in school. He was a troublemaker growing up. Uh, didn't really take to the academic side of it. He went to a place called Haro School, which was like a almost like a prerequisite, like a military sort of like before college. It was like a preparatory school. Yeah, almost. you could take. He said something like he went to the Haro School. It feels like it always took him multiple tries to get into these uh-huh. schools. And then he finally got in like on the third try when I'm guessing like at some point Randolph was like, he's getting fucking in. Like, <laughs> do you guys need like a new building or like a new wing or something like that? He's getting in. He had the money to facilitate yeah. it. And he really like him going to Haro was kind of at his father's request. Like, I, it I was sort of, I think he went there more to try to please his dad. Yeah. Do you imagine these schools as like the fully uniformed schools and like the preparatory schools? Like that's what I'm seeing. Like, in the old, okay. So almost like a Catholic style school. Where that's you, kind of, it's weird. a regimented schedule. Yeah. Everybody wears the same shit. You and they live, live in dorms. There. And they live there at the uh-huh. school. I would imagine. Yeah. They live in dormitories. Um, so, but his last three years of the Harrow school, his father wanted it to be military centric, or I guess they had more of a military curriculum that he could do. So he did that. And then after that, he went to the Royal Military Academy, which was in, or called like Sandhurst. Yeah. And did that on his third try. And he was accepted as like a cadet in the cavalry at a time when the cavalry was literally cavalry, like the guys charging in on the the swords on horses and shit. Well, and it seems like, Haro and Sandhurst kind of fit his mold better because he was, like I say, not terribly smart, which is really surprising to know that he was this bad in school because later on, I don't he know becomes like a literary Yeah, I don't icon. know if it's necessarily that he was smart. It's one of those things where maybe, he, you know, you look at what curriculum they were trying to force him to do. And maybe he was just bored with it or that part didn't interest him in the other stuff. And that's what they deemed him to be unintelligent in regards to that. Could be. I think part of it is just kind of being, especially with his family upbringing, probably being like rebellious and stuff like that and getting into trouble. There was something about like him being basically raised by their nanny. Her name was Elizabeth Everest. And he said something to the effect of like, she was my dearest and most intimate friend for like over 20 years or something like that. Um, after she had died. So I don't know if it was him just also just having like a rebellious streak. So he was getting into trouble. And at that point too, if you're, if you're rebellious and you're getting into trouble, they probably deem you as less intellectually gifted than the people who aren't like making waves. Uh, It could be. I mean, he still had to take these tests multiple times to get into these schools. So it may. Yeah. And yeah, that's the thing too, is it depends on what they were requiring as intelligence versus what. and I think everybody kind of runs that course now. Mm-hmm. I fucking hated math. Yeah. When I made it to college, I only took one college yeah. course of math because it was just terrible. But I loved history. I loved anthropology. Mm-hmm. Like, And I'm sure as far as like his military career, and not only his military career, but his journalism career in military situations, yeah. it, Sandhurst and Haro had to have been just right up his alley. Like that was mm-hmm. that was his deal. And we find out later on in life, which we'll get to eventually, 
He's an avid reader. Like, the dude just eats books for yeah. dinner. Which I think is really kind of a different kind of intelligence that he may not have had to flex to get into these schools. That's the thing. He could have been just bored. And I'm not saying yeah. bored in the sense of, like, the subjects and topics bored him. He could have just been lazy at that point in his life and unmotivated. Wasn't challenged, so he didn't really try to push yeah. into challenging himself. Well, he ends up graduating... Um, and then, like, a month later, after Winston graduates in, like, January 1895, uh, Randolph dies. So he becomes the head of the household at that point. And I think he has one younger brother. Is that what it is? I think so. But he started his military service in 1893, so he was two years into the military before his dad passed. So he did kind of make it sort of to where I think his dad had wanted and... That was sort of mm-hmm. their relationship, and I think sort of what shaped Winston the whole entire time was that desire to just always do things that his dad would be proud of. There's Later on in life, I want to say it was kind of towards the end of his life, maybe not because of he, he like wrote articles about it and all that type mm-hmm. of shit, but he actually had a talk with his ghost father, and it was like a conversation where his dad, I'm sure he was drunk when this happened, but his There's ghost, a high likelihood of that. Yeah, his ghost dad showed up, and he didn't even mention like the prime minister parts of his career or anything like that. It was so tightly based around his military service and what he saw, and just him trying to gain that acceptance from his dad, even after his dad had passed. So what you're saying, because that's a his manif- manifestation of his dad, that because that's what was important to his manifestation of his dad, mm-hmm. that that in turn is what he thought was important to his dad. Yeah, and I think that it that's really just kind of what drove him to do a lot of it. I'm sure a lot of what drove him was the fact that everybody told him that he was crazy or that he was wrong or that his his beliefs kind of wandered. And we'll talk about his political career, but the guy never really changed his true north. Everybody else around him changed their policies. I've kind of found that when I was looking that I couldn't decide whether it was he just had more of a centrist view of a lot of things and was willing to actually hear out people from other and differing mm. opinions. And he wasn't afraid of changing his or if like you're saying he was just truly in the middle and there were a lot of players like coming across or like what do they call it crossing the crossing the aisle. Was it crossing the aisle is the term or something like that crossing the line. Oh, yeah. He went just. Before we really get into his political career, well, I have, uh, yeah, I have a bunch of stuff on his essential like army service, even yeah. before he gets into politics. Uh, and we'll get to it, but just to kind of explain the point, he was a conservative from 1900 to 1904. Then the party sort of shifted away from what the actual beliefs were, and part of it was they went to more of like a. Uh, not really an isolationism, but they didn't try to trade a lot, and there weren't a lot of trade deals going anywhere. Yeah, the the British political system is very confusing to me. And I know saying yeah. that as an American, it's probably pretty – that's probably weird to say. But, like, their political system seems to it be much more fluid in the fact that opinions can change. Kind of like how when we talked about the Civil War, how technically it was the Republicans – that were more like Democrats today mm. versus Democrats versus Republicans today. I feel like British government and parliament and everything is a much like faster acting version of that. Like the conservatives can be like for this and everything like this in this 10 year span, but then they can almost kind of change their ideology. Mm-hmm. And then you have like what the Tory Democrats who are part of the conservatives. And then you have the, 
What's, this was what, even prior to the Labor Party. And when yeah, we're talking had, conservative, liberal, and Labor Party, liberal is almost more of the centrist between yeah. the two of them. Like It's almost like the, the center bridge to where they can come and meet. Mm-hmm. And because they do have these different political systems within the parliament you will see them team up as far as like liberals and conservatives. They might not win the majority vote, yeah, but they'll still have enough seats together to where they can combine and kind of become the majority party. Yeah. There's a lot of sharing back and forth. So kind of going along with his flexibility for his ideas and everything like that. Some people saw it as a negative. They saw it as him being like wishy-washy and jumping ship and everything like that. Basically how he described himself, he was an ideologically an uh, economic liberal and imperialist uh, he was definitely an imperialist. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, that's he, that's for him not to people that were not imperialist at this time. That was the outliers mm-hmm. for the most part. Everybody was an imperialist at that time. So that's something that when you talk about it, kind of in hindsight, it is a negative thing against him. But at the time, it wasn't outside the norm. He was just kind of the I guess the more the majority. Well, it, it's it's a turn of phrase that I don't really enjoy because I don't feel like it gives people cover. Yeah. But the phrase, it was a different time back then. Like, you can use it in certain situations. And at this point in history, we have um, French territories that have been taken over by France. We have Spanish territories that have been taken over by Spain. We have British territories that have taken over India, Australia, obviously. The, the real big areas, the... That's why you hear like the Dutch West Indies and shit like that. That's like, why you. That's why what was it Beijing that was British controlled yes. up until like yeah. That's the craziest thing is when if you're old enough to have heard of this stuff where you do have places like French Polynesia uh-huh. and you have the Dutch East Indies and then you know you have places down in like Singapore that were British ruler India. When India was under British, this is at a time when India was under like full blown British rule. Yeah, what I think is the most populated country in the world was technically British ruled and owned, yeah. and that, it was just kind of how it was. That was the thing too. Is is Churchill did believe this is kind of and another knock kind of against Churchill and everything. Like you're saying, I think when you use the term, it was a different. It was a different time back then. You can't use that as an argument to say what your opinion, why you have a similar opinion now. The, yeah. the argument doesn't work like that. Yep. I'm just saying it to kind of provide like context of how it was. But one thing that kind of hurt Churchill kind of later in his career, not even later in his career, actually a little bit early on in his career, was politically he believed that India wasn't prepared to govern itself or didn't have the capability of governing itself. So he felt that they owed it or they had a duty to go ahead and oversee and rule the Indian people because he felt that was it as a race, they weren't able to govern themselves. Yeah. And that's, again, these are knocks for the time. We're not saying that Churchill was a bad guy. This is the same debate that we have with Washington and Jefferson and everything like that. As a whole, they did a lot of great people things. People are people. Yeah. Th- that's uh, the whole point. Is people everybody's are, fallible. Is everyone's fallible. And he he had these and I'm not saying these to con or to try to make excuses. What I'm saying is this is kind of the complexity or complexity of Winston Churchill. So he didn't believe that the Indian people could essentially rule themselves, but he wasn't against it wasn't in – I'm trying to think of how to say this because he also argued 
and tried to like fight for the like inhumane treatment of other like soldiers that they were yeah. that were fighting with the British that he deemed in areas not to be able to govern themselves. So it was weird. He was like he would fight in a certain way for the people, but then in another way he would kind of fight against those people. The easiest way that I think I can explain it is when he was a schoolboy and when he was learning and everything like that, Charles Darwin was still alive. Charles Darwin had still made his journeys around the world, and there was sort of a scientific belief at the time just vis-a-vis because Darwin was going around to these different countries and meeting all these people that there was like a, not a racial superiority, but like there were just people that were less. I think he, it was a cultural superiority is yeah, what it was. Yeah, probably. He felt that because of their culture. So it, there's not, it's not really splitting hairs, race or culture, or anything like that. But his wasn't an intellectual capability idea. He just felt their culture hadn't reached a certain advancement to where they were able to govern themselves effectively. And because the British were more advanced by his standard that they should step in and do that. Yeah, which I, I've heard arguments both ways. And I don't really get the argument of like, well, look how much better off they are now because we intervened. Because mm-hmm. everybody's on their own evolutionary scale. Is it great that they stopped You know, some of the things that were going on, cannibalism and stuff like that? Yeah, that's that's awesome. But at the same time, there's that kind of guiding hand to where they were helping these people that they were... Um, it wasn't really like slavery. They were just ruling over these countries. They were also reaping the benefits. Subjugating. Of, yeah, the natural resources were, under their were coming back there. And yeah. their laws. So they were getting money from them. They were getting goods and different things like that, yeah. which in turn just really helped England. But we it also was obviously see- wrong because even Churchill was alive when they started. What does he say? The disbandment of the empire. He was mm. he was sad to see, and that's what they'd considered itself. When you really think about it, it's weird to like be like, oh yeah, like there were empires just until you know within the last hundred years. Like the British had an empire because it was Great Britain, this little island. But then it was also like India, and then a section of China, and like islands like in the Caribbean. And then think about like Australia, New Zealand. Like those were founded as British colonies and everything. So they had an empire that until the end of World War II, was very much intact and then kind of got parsed up. And it's still, I think, to this day, there's places in Africa that are heavily influenced by England. And as far as India goes, we've had this talk a couple times about the national dish of England is um, curry. Like, (laughs) there's no question as Mm -hmm. to how curry is the most, or the the most favorite food in England. But we also see with Churchill, which I think kind of explains more to the point was he was very friendly with Jewish people. He believed that Mm -hmm. Jewish people shouldn't be getting the shit that they're getting from kind of everywhere. Because when we talk about history back then, it wasn't just the Germans that were shitting on the Jews. Like there, there were a lot of different countries that were taking shots at them as far as, not only immigration, but like where they needed to be in the hierarchy of the world. Yeah, and, where, where their control lied as far as finances and yeah, stuff like that as far, yeah. But he didn't see it that way. He was, for lack of a better term, I think they've called him a Zionist. Uh, there's another word that's different than, I don't even know what it was. But it's not like an anti-Semite, it's like a pro-Semite. It's, I think it was like pro-Semite, something like that. But he really saw the distinction of uh, people that were being treated poorly that he didn't want to be seen. And like you were saying before, when they would capture um, 
enemies that they were fighting on front lines, he didn't want them to be tortured. He didn't want them to be treated improperly. Yeah. Well, not only that, it extended to he saw how because again, this was at a time like because of colonialism when the British expeditionary force, which is their version of their army, that's what they call their army, the expeditionary force, mm-hmm. was made up of these huge segments of Indian soldiers and by soldiers from like um, some African uh, areas and everything. And so you would have these soldiers within your army, but they would essentially be different segments of soldiers. So he saw these other segments of soldiers of places that they had colonial power over being like mistreated. So he would speak out against that as well. I mean, his first, as far as like his military service and everything, it, I don't know. You hear people like talk about like, I want to see the world and everything. Like he wanted to get into it after school. He wanted to get into it as quickly as he could. He, and this is going to kind of tie into how he builds a relationship with different American politicians, uh-huh. but he actually in like a little after 1895, he wanted to see action. So he went to Cuba to observe the war of independence there. Yeah. And that ended up being over the years. Didn't that switch rule from Cuba to like American backed away from like French backed or something like that? Uh, I think it was Spanish back. Spanish back. That's right. Yeah, because he went in there, and his first action that he ever saw was he was trying to suppress the freedom fighters by helping the Spanish troops in Cuba. Yeah. So he, so fighting against the Americans technically, or an American backed force. Yeah. Yeah, in a way, but he just he. When I say that he was crazy, he wanted to be where the action was pretty much all the time. Like he just went over to Cuba as an observer. Yeah. He was like, fuck it. I'm going to get my hands dirty. I'm going to get in there and make things happen. There's certain things that he's done over time while he was at war. And I'm sure you'll get he's, to it. He's being legitimately posted by the military to these areas. He just has some influence in which like he's able to use a little bit of this influence to get him posted to these specific places uh-huh. that he wants to go. Which I'm sure being the son of Lord Randolph was probably helpful. That, that's what it is. Like it like if you just kinda like look at it at a glance, you're like, so he just took off to these places? Like, no, he was able to influence himself mm-hmm. under being the British officer or whatever to to go to these places. But to the opposite, he was trying to go to these places to get engaged. Yeah. Like, he wasn't just going to watch or like mm-hmm. have fun or anything like that. It wasn't vacation. It was like I'm gonna make some shit happen. Yeah. And he was really driven by like his desire to get medals and there was one point i think it was during world war one where everybody was laying down i don't know if it was in the trenches or whatever but he was just like fuck it i gotta earn a medal somehow and just stands up like stands Mm -hmm. up and basically gives himself up as they're shooting and firing at or as they're being shot at Mm -hmm. like he just he wanted to be in the action to the point where he just stands up and doesn't get hit by bullets but ends up surviving, and he does get a Medal of Honor for that. But Not just standing up for doing something, right? I think he just stand up or stood up and started firing back. Okay. He was the only guy that stood up and just started firing back. I'm going to have to look into this. Yeah, I, um, I forgot when it was. One of the things, too, is this is kind of when he started to almost act as like a war correspondence and really started like writing as far as like like – I don't know what you would consider this type of right. He would essentially write down his experiences and like the information, just like a war correspondent does. And he would be sending it back to uh, England to have it mm-hmm. like printed in a certain paper. Yeah. He just crazy enough. Um, after he got done with Cuba in 1896, he was down in India and well, he, he 
he visited New York first. Yeah. So on his way kind of from Cuba, he went in, he went to the United States and kind of traveled to a couple different places and then went to New York because I think that's where his mom was from. And overall had like a relatively like positive experience of like the American like people and culture. Yeah, I think he liked us. I think that America was kind of a maybe a hope and a dream for him. And at that point, we really, as far as England and America, there's still, I think, a little bit of commingling. I think there was still... Oh, 100%. At this point, there was... I'm pretty sure there was... A, this was like a a time of like trade and everything like that. Or we're a hundred years after the revolutionary yeah, war. I think, I think a big thing too about Churchill is I think the reason that he goes like, so balls in on a lot of this stuff is he's one of those people that he doesn't wait till he reaches the end of something before making the plan for the next thing. I think he had like a career plan to where he's like, I'm going to serve in the military for this much time. I need to accumulate this many accolades in order to, make it to parliament by this age. And I think the reason he kind of had that stuff in, in mind and everything is he knew he had to have wanting to get where he wanted to be in like parliament or whatever that system. I think he knew he had to have certain experiences within those fields. So that's why he went to also serve in the army and it would actually lend like, you know, he comes in with his medals and everything like that. It, it helped him that way, but I think it also helped him just learn more about what he was doing. Exactly, the world. Yeah. Is, that's why, right. And he, that's why he was trying to take things that were away from England. You know, you, you find that, like, he was based, you know, you were just, I think you were just about to talk when he was based in India. Yeah. And that's when his mom started sending him books, when he was mm-hmm. requesting books from all these different authors. 19 and months. Was, and huh? I mean, that doesn't sound like a lot of time. 19 months. No, it, it doesn't, but... Back then, when you're in a war, there's not really a whole lot going on. And he wasn't active, I don't think, in India. I'm not really sure what was going on. But he had a lot of time on his hands to where he would start to read. And I think that sort of starts to shape the journalist in him and sort of begins that career. Because after that, um, he started his career in politics in 1899. He ran for parliament in Oldham, uh, Lancashire, which I think Oldham is a a soccer team. Did you get to his capture and escape? No, that's coming up. Okay. There was one thing even before that. Before his capture? Or even before he, um, when you were talking about him self-educating himself, I had something on that. Just kind of the stuff that he started educating himself with, he would have his mom send him like Plato, Edward Gibbon, Charles Darwin, that you just talked about and everything. This is also when he started really learning uh, politics. Because she would have him send, have her send him the paper that basically, apparently there was an entire newspaper dedicated to all of like the political going on, mm-hmm. goings on in uh, Great Britain. So he would be in India during this time, basically catching up on everything and keeping up on everything and learning about the different parties and all that kind of stuff. That's why I mean, I think, I feel like he was very like focused on he knew exactly what the next step was going to be and was preparing for it at all times. Well, and I just to kind of point out how far that took him, he held 20 different political offices in his career. Yeah. Like that's uh, just a million between parliamentary seats. He was the ambassador to the colonies as far as everywhere that they ruled over. Like Mm -hmm. he was really a man of the people and out there. And that includes two times as prime minister, which seems, I I don't know how it works over there, but he had a, a little time off in between his first and second term. But he just, he really knew 
like you're talking about at that age, at a fairly young age, because we're talking 1899, he was born in 1874, so what, that's 25 years old, mm-hmm. that he's really starting to shape his his political aspirations and kind of his career aspirations. Well, one thing, too, like you were talking about trying to cram as much, you know, experience as far as like wartime stuff. 1897, he volunteered to join a campaign against, they were called the Moment Rebels, and he was accepted to go as like a war journalist. And it was during that time, during that campaign, that he wrote actually his first book and an additional book, which happened to be his only like attempt at fiction. So he... He, he actually made it. He tried fiction out? He wrote a fiction book. Apparently it wasn't that successful. It was his only try at it. Well, but, yeah, he's lived so many real life experiences that fiction doesn't really seem like well, it's Yeah, but like alley. 1897, at this point, like you're saying, he's even younger. He is 22 at this point, and he wrote his first book. I'm not saying it was like a smash hit, but it was popular, and it was like well-received. So he already has enough life experience to write a fucking book at this point. Yeah. At like 22 years old. Uh, and that's prior to his his political aspirations in his career. So back up to 1899, he runs for parliament in Lancashire, ends up not winning it. So after he ends up not winning, he sails to South Africa because he was going to cover the Second Boer War as a war journalist for a paper called The Morning Post. And as they're getting down there, or I don't know if it was as they were getting down there, they were traveling, there was a train derailment, and they were taken in by the enemy as POWs. Mm Mm-hmm. And just to think about this and to think about now, like he was just a a prisoner of war. Yeah. Like he went to a prison camp Mm -hmm. and was there for a couple months and then just had the balls on him to say, fuck this, I'm out and escaped. Yeah. Like how you're a prisoner in a foreign war that you have no idea about. You're just going to try to escape Mm -hmm. within the first couple months. Which he ends up doing. He It's like through a combination of escape hiding in like freight cars and then at one point he hid in a mine <laughs> or something but then he made it like north to like spain or portuguese occupied yeah but everyone had their hand in africa at this yeah. point keep in mind so it was either portuguese or spanish occupied africa and then because they weren't in an um adversarial position with england they arranged for him transport and then he got transport south back down to south africa and like joined back up and like link back up with his where he was supposed to be. He wasn't even fighting in this war when he became a POW. He was just covering it as a journalist. Yeah. And throughout his career at one point, he was like the highest paid war journalist around. Mm-hmm. He had had that much cachet about him that people just wanted him. So they were willing to pay whatever they could because they knew that he would actually get into the shit. Like he wasn't just going down there and trying to cover the war from a distance. He's like, let me get on the front lines. Let me check some stuff out. Let me see what's going on. I'm going to write you the most accurate piece of what's going on here. I just, the thought of being a POW in your early twenties and not actually being like actively involved. It in the seemed war it, they, the way they talk about it was so casual. Yeah. Like and his train got derailed by some shelling and then he was taken prisoner of war, but don't worry. He escaped. Flipped his eyelids yeah. inside out so he could gather water so he was able to, to yeah. survive in the POW camp. Like just, just so fucking casual. Casual, yeah. And after that, at 25, he finally secures his first political victory, which was a seat in the House of Commons. And I think that is... His House of Commons 
what you consider parliament as I far think as it's that a part room. of it. I think it's like a, how we have like the House of Representatives and the Senate. Okay. I think House of Commons is a part of it. Okay. What is the room that they all sit on each opposite sides of each other? In the middle is that weird desk with the three judges. And they put all of when they're going to give a speech, they put stuff on these old wooden chests. In England? Yeah. It's got to be the House of Commons. I don't know. Hmm. A chamber or something like that? Well, yeah. It, I just know because I saw it on a few like documentaries. And it always like even like they, I don't know if like the little chests are still there today. It's like a ceremonial thing oh, is what okay. I think it was. Uh, for as weird as we get a Yes, it's the House of, you're right. It's the House of Commons. Okay. With the tradition and the weird shit that we do. In our politics, I forget that there's other countries that have been around yeah. for hundreds of years longer. So, so look at this. Okay, they all sit on separate sides like that. There's three guys right there. Yeah. They're like the three judges. And uh-huh. then there's these wooden, two wooden chests right here. And when they're getting up to speak, they set their papers or their speeches on the wooden. And that's like the speaker's position is standing up at that. And they each have one on each side. And the people but like that- I'm saying, it like... I look at that like it's ridiculous, but then you look at our system for it, that it's all in the round and everyone just yells at each other. Yeah, and ours is like the most modern equivalent of that. Yeah. Like that's the the most normal thing that we – other countries that have had thousands of years of uh-huh. history and have kind of adapted their government from that, they're going to do some pretty goofy shit too. But he was, I think, in that position – he was 25 when that happened – so 25 years old would have been, what, 1901-ish, somewhere around there. Well, no, it would have been in October of 1900, he won that victory. Okay. So he was 25 at the time, and he wasn't fucking around either, because literally, like, right around that time, he then writes uh, a book called Ian Hamilton's March. So Ian Hamilton, I guess, was a either commanding officer, general, something like that, and he it was during like an engagement or a campaign i can't remember what war it was it might have actually been during like the south africa wars the boer wars or whatever but he writes a book and it's so successful like he sent on like a lecture tour that sent him to the united states and this is where he actually meets mark twain uh, president mckinley and um teddy roosevelt hmm. so that's where they actually met he was on like a lecture for a book tour yeah, he. I guess you just see him so much as like the political figure in World War II that it's tough to realize like he was that popular as a, a writer yeah. that he was just on a book tour that was worldwide. Yes, like, huh. here's the thing that's like, so crazy about to me personally about Churchill. There's this four to five year stretch that overshadows everything else in his career so much that people are shocked to learn about the other aspects of his career other than this, like, four- to five-year stretch during World War II. Fun fact, when he went to Africa, there is a um, listing of the amount of alcohol he brought with him on one of them. Uh, 36 bottles of wine, 18 bottles of scotch, six bottles of brandy. Um, And it was kind of around, it might have been a little bit after this time, is when he establishes his um, very well-known drinking regiment during the day. He was probably there for a week if he only had that much, right? <laughs> that was I don't know if it was as heavy yet. I think this might have been in his early days when he went to Africa and didn't have his yeah, that um drinking regiment set up yet. For everything else that he did in his life, he was a great man 
and a legend, somebody that we haven't really seen like a, a second of as far as like... We have not seen his likes since. Yeah, but when you just strictly boil it down to his drinking, he might be one of the greatest of all time. Oh, like, yeah. And, and He lived be, till 90. He was literally yeah. a functional alcoholic, but at no point did anybody ever say that he seemed impaired or question or question like that his poor decision making might have been a result of the alcohol. It was so weird that he was so operable and everyone knew it wasn't it was like a well-kept secret. No. But like he was still so capable that it never called into question his ability to to lead. That's nuts cuz nowadays like no, that would be fucking ridiculous. We saw it happen, how much of a raging drunk Nixon was. Yes. And how lucky we were that there were other people that surrounded him not to make the they decisions. They kept his fucking that, hand off the button. Uh huh. Yeah. But, Waited till he sobered up to make fucking decisions. And for as great of a man as he is, you'll hear historians or people that were writing books about him and be like, oh, no, he wasn't an alcoholic. There's no fucking way he wasn't an alcoholic. Yes. And I, I don't mean that. The, in the timing term. of his drinks throughout the day was spaced almost strategically to where he never had to really lose his buzz. Yeah, he was anything. always keeping a little bit of something mm-hmm. in the tank. And to go along with that, he was a historical cigar smoker, too. Yes. The man would light up in the morning. He'd just be smoking a cigar in bed. We'll, mm. we'll talk about Winston Churchill Day. Yeah. How cool is that to just wake up and roll over and just light a stogie and you're sitting there reading the paper? You have an English breakfast laid out in front of you, just sitting on a platter mm-hmm. and you're just puffing away. You got your brandy in one hand. You're about to dive into some beans for breakfast. It's a hell of a way to live. Um. In Okay, so his political career starts in 1900. In 1904, he joined as a member of the conservative party, but in 1904, he crossed the floor is what they call it to the liberal party. And I think here's the thing. He kind of, for the majority of his career, he served as a member of the conservative party. Um, He took power. He took power as a prime minister, as a member of the conservative Mm -hmm. party. Right. Okay. But, like we were saying, he was kind of fluid into like how he saw the <laughs> sorry, how he kind of saw the tides flowing on like certain topics. He had a kind of tendency or a reputation of being someone who would go across what they consider the, or what we consider the aisle and actually like strike up like relationships like about stuff. So, so he in, had some, in other words, you're saying that he was a good politician. Yes. Yes. <laughs> he wasn't so He wasn't a traditional politician. He was what you want your politician to be, like to be able to go ahead and see stuff from different viewpoints. I, and he really, as far as that goes, he sees so much of kind of his belief system is so solid, which not to say that he wouldn't change thoughts on issues or different things like that, but he would recognize like, okay, the conservative party is getting a little bit off the rails on something that I believe in. Mm-hmm. I'm going to back out. We're going to take some time away. I'm I'm just going to walk across the aisle. I want to say it had something to do with, and this is kind of a reoccurring theme up until they gain independence, but it's like Irish self, Ireland self-governance or something like that. He didn't agree with what the conservatives had as far as their viewpoints on it. So he went across to the. I don't. I don't know what the specifics are of it. I think it was that. I think it was part of like trade agreements and different things. And he, for as successful as he was, he had some major political blunders in his life. Yeah. But he just kind of stayed with what he knew and did the Liberal Party thing from 1904 to 1924, which 
is something that would be unheard of today. There's yeah. you would never be able to switch parties and probably win re-election the next time out. It just it no. doesn't happen anymore. It, let alone switch back later. Yeah, and then just yeah. be like, yeah, I've had enough of this liberal yeah. stuff. The conservatives are sort of back more into the center of the Venn diagram. I think that just you don't even hear that in this in this day. That's why he was kind of an outlier and that's why the kind of the knock on him was he kind of was wishy-washy on which side he was going to be. So he was even not looked upon kindly in this time. He referred to himself as like a double turncoat or something yeah, like something that. Like, like that. something funny. Like he even kind of enjoyed the the funness of it, mm-hmm. I think. And I mean, he he keeps getting like different appointments too. So like in 1908, he's appointed the president of the trade or the board of trade at 33 years old. The youngest cabinet men, or cabinet member since 1866. Um, in February of 1910, so two years later, when he's 35, he's promoted to home secretary. 35 years old, promoted to home secretary. That's the person that's giving. Him, that's the person that has control over the police and prison services. And at 35 years old, he starts implementing prison reform to separate war criminals from political prisoners. Um, that seems smart. Yep. Um, try, to try them differently since, or I'm sorry, like violent criminals from uh, political prisoners. Um, he also wanted to give them access to like libraries and stuff like that so they could better themselves while they were incarcerated. He had a lot of like really positive, like really forward thinking ideas. Yeah. I just, uh, looking at him politically, he got shit done. Like it wasn't, you weren't trying to run out the clock. His, idea of being a political figure was sort of to make sure that he got reelected because he was doing things, not because he was saying things. And the reform that you were talking about with prison or anything like that, it was all to benefit the people and to try to not necessarily keep the faith in the political system, but to show that they were actually making strides and doing different things. And he runs afoul a little bit later, kind of before he takes power as the prime minister for the first time with the gold standard debacle, which we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. But he always kind of has the best interest of the people at heart, whereas we just don't really see that anymore. Well, he supported women's suffrage, so basically a woman's woman's right to vote. I had no idea that that was something outside of America. I don't know why I was so America-centric about that idea. You assumed it was so truly American? Yeah, like I just assumed... So specifically American? We would be the only ones that would not allow, like, (laughs) women the right to vote, right? No, not us. No idea that that was something that was an ideology outside of America, but it makes total sense. Like, I, I get it now. Well, you get where it probably came from. Yeah. The ideas of it came from now makes more sense. There was a lot of Um, justification to not let women vote in America because they couldn't vote other places. Yeah, but not letting him truly off the the hook on that one because he would only back the bill if it had majority support. So he had to know which way it was already going to go through. Yeah, if he had to argue for it, he's like, nah, not me. I'm I'm good. (laughs) Hey, if, if you all are for it, I'm good. Like, you all want pizza, I'll get pizza. Pizza sounds good, but you guys don't want pizza, I'm not going to argue for pizza. Pizza doesn't get a vote. Um, He keeps working his way, like, very quickly. So at 36 in October, or sorry, when he's 36 years old, in October of 1911, he's appointed the first Lord of the Admiralty. That is the dude that's in charge of the entire Navy. I'm glad you explained it because I have no idea. There's terms and words that they use. Okay. I just, I don't This understand. is so fucking nuts to think of it in this context. So he's like 36, 37 years old. He is being put in charge of not only just like the Navy of Great Britain, the Navy, naval power in Great Britain, that is their bread and butter well, because they're, they're an, an island. island. Yeah. I know. 
But like, you know, you think back of what like British naval explorers, it was always ships and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. As it's become like a war type thing, that's been the thing too. That's the only reason why Great Britain, aside from the RAF, you know, during the Battle of Britain, was able to go ahead and, you know, stand toe to toe with Germany for a while is because they were able to control like the English Channel and a lot of the area like in the, or in the Atlantic there. So to put a 37 year old in charge of that is fucking crazy. So he created at that point, this was 1911. He's also like, and I'll get into a little bit more detail on it, but he's also been like a student of history. And I think that came from him, like doing so much reading and Mm, studying and everything that he kind of could see the writing on the wall with certain regimes that were getting ready to take power. So he started paying attention like over the next two years of him being appointed the, um, Lord of the Admiralty, he creates a naval war staff, which apparently you don't create a war staff. Like During unless, peacetime. Exactly. Unless you're preparing for war, uh, you're already at war. He focused on naval prep for the next two years and was really paying close attention to Germany's naval production at that point as well. And in 1912, uh, German naval law, there was a law that was signed to increase their ship production. So Churchill was basically like, fine, every one battleship you build, I'm going to build two. Smart. Uh, it's staying ahead of the curve. I think part of what I kind of saw that leads me to believe that he really saw the writing on the wall with Germany was the first time, the first time. Yeah. Yeah. Was he had been in these areas of Africa covering these different wars and he saw like the, I think there were the caliphate back then. Um, the, the Muslim kind of fanaticism that went along with the religion and mm-hmm. he kind of saw the religious fan, uh, religious fanaticism, and he started to see the same thing popping up, not in religion anymore, but in political parties mm-hmm. and ideologies, to where he knew, like, okay, these people that were down there bombing for God or bombing for Allah or whoever it was, that's not just specific to religion. That can be applied to really anything in life. Like, yeah, like... Um Political extremist yeah. groups or anything, or like fringe extremist groups, things uh, like that. He saw religious extremism, and he knew that that wasn't just going to stay in the religious sphere. That was going to jump ship and go into politics. I'm not quite sure. When we actually look in and do an episode like on World War One, like specifically and everything, I'm sure there were things leading up to it. Because essentially World War One was, yes, fought the Axis powers or the bad guys you would consider would have been Germany, the Ottoman Empire, which Germany was a part of. Uh-huh. And then they were aligned with who? It was the Ottomans. Was it the Italians? No, the Turks. I think the it Ottomans, was the, the Turks, Turks because I feel like one of the starting points of World War One was Archduke Franz Ferdinand getting assassinated, right? Yeah. And that was a, a major political shift that was occurring kind of in that Ottoman area. So it was like the Austro-Hungary Empire, and I think that was like the Ottoman Empire. Germany and Austria, Hungary, yeah. Which another thing that is kind of odd to talk about today because we just know these places where they are. But these empires that we see back then, like the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarians and all that kind of stuff, the reason that we have such a fucked up Middle East now is because was it after World War One? After World War Two, like Iraq and Iran and everything gets divvied up. Yeah, yeah they were just drawing arbitrary mm-hmm. lines between these countries, 
or between these swaths of land and turning them into countries, but there was no thought of like, okay, the Kurds live in this region, so we should probably keep them all within the same country. Yeah. They were just drawing lines willy-nilly wherever they wanted. They said when it came to the end of World War II, basically how they divided it up is, were you there in that theater during the last year of the war? So like the areas that the Russians were in during the last mm-hmm. year of the war, that automatically became part of you know Russia and the Soviet Union. That's where you get all the division now between like, you know, when the when they broke up the Soviet Union, like Yugoslavia and like Slovakia and all those places got broken up and apart from Ukraine. Soviet. Yeah, those were all previously places that were claimed that were lands that could have been different countries even before World War II when they got claimed and overtaken by the Germans. It's so weird to think about that, that like there were new countries formed like less yeah. than a hundred years ago over in Europe. Yeah, the Middle East was kind of like just one big large area. Yeah. And there weren't really lines drawn towards like Afghanistan, Iraq. I think Iran was sort of part of that. Mm-hmm. And it was just an area that was up for grabs. And it had not it wasn't like up for grabs recently. Like this is an area that's been fought over for a thousand plus years. Mm-hmm. So in order to draw those lines, um it just it was such a political thing. And he stayed in politics. That was the other weird thing was like, you're talking about, he became the, the secretary of the Navy, the Lord of the Admiralty, Lord of the Admiral, mm-hmm. um, top Navy dog. Yeah. At such a young age, 1915 rolls around. We start world war one. He goes and reenlists in the army again. Well, there was, there was something that happened before that. So nineteen, it, so it starts in nineteen fourteen actually. So Churchill's overseeing the naval effort and Britain's aerial defense during that time. Um, it was, I think he went and joined the army. Was it after Gallipoli? I think so. Okay, yeah. so this is one big knock on on Churchill that oh I forgot yeah uh, um, that one. people would use against him in like Parliament and everything like that. So basically, it would be like if. The comparison, oh shit, uh, in the Civil War we were talking about, it was uh, Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. So basically, if Robert E. Lee had, any time after Gettysburg, had brilliant strategy or suggested a campaign or something, everybody would always be like, hey, so remember Gettysburg? So that would always be like their chip to counter him. Mm-hmm. Gallipoli becomes that for Winston Churchill. So basically, during this campaign, Gallipoli is through like the GNC, it's a way to access like the Baltic region or something like that. It goes between like, like Turkey or something like that. It was a, it was where they were trying to control like access to like oil and everything. So it was being held in world war one, um, by like the Ottoman Turks or something like that. And being the Admiralty or lead force Lord of the Admiralty, he basically sets up this campaign, um, the Gallipoli campaign because he's trying to, in a roundabout way, relieve pressure and have them draw troops out of France, Germans. And so then the French and the English can advance Mm -hmm. where they're like stalled in the trenches. So all this activity is going to happen down in like the Mediterranean. That's going to cause like a movement of German troops to have to be pulled from Northern France. And the way it's described, like it, it was like a beach landing and all this kind of stuff, but the like, oppositions like defenses were like way way stronger it ended up taking a lot longer than it needed to and it ended up being a failure there were like 50,000 casualties with 250,000 soldiers incapacitated from fighting 
So, I mean, it was like... it That's was a big fuck-up. It was a big fuck-up. And I want to say that there's... According to him, there were leaks within... Um, he was Lord of the Admiralty. He took responsibility for stuff, but he would have an argument that secrecy was of like the utmost for this operation. And there were leaks from somehow like within like army divisions down there, not leaks, but they showed their hands too early to show them that they were coming into this area. And so that was like his excuse for it. But one thing about Churchill is he's that kind of helps him to get back is he always does take the fault for his mistakes. So he takes his lumps that he just always seems to learn from it. Yeah. Like, there's always at least one something that he pulls out of every failure. He pays. He I has. mean, he pays for this. He gets removed. So this raises such an issue that literally within a month, I think, they have a, like, whatever they discuss in the House of Commons. There's so much pressure from the opposing side that they have to remove him. The, like, leading party removes him from being the uh, first Lord of the Admiralty. And then that's when he rejoins the army and he goes back into combat in northern France. And I'm sure at that point in time, because that was during his liberal years, that the conservative party that he had left probably wasn't too keen on keeping mm-hmm. him in power still. They were probably looking for a reason to get him out of there, if you're really thinking about and it. And he gave him a great one. But yeah. yeah, there was definitely added political pressure to the... But like you just stopped being essentially the head of the Navy, of like the most powerful Navy uh-huh. currently at the time in the world. And your first instinct is to be like, so I'm just going to hand me a rifle, I'm going to fight. Going back in. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I just, it's so crazy to me that that's his pivot and that's his move is to go from maybe wearing a wig, maybe wearing a powdered wig while he was in <laughs> in Parliament mm. to, like you say, just going out and signing back up. Be like, yeah, give me old blue, give me my old rifle what, back, we're back to it. What you were saying about him like learning so much from all of his experiences and going into things with the specific goal of gaining experience. So he goes back into the army. He serves a little bit of time for the army. And then in 1917, so literally within two years, he's made the Minister of Munitions. And basically the Minister of Munitions job is within, you know, Parliament and everything. They're the one that makes sure that the war output for bullets and bombs and shells and everything for the country can match what the war's output is. So his job was to, he'd gone and got that experience on the front front line or whatever he actually came back to and he made it like standard issue for all soldiers to receive steel helmets because apparently he got hit in the head while he was down there and like a piece of shrapnel almost like killed him by hitting him in the head what would it they just would have been leather helmets back then i don't know if it was standard issue i think maybe like higher ranking officers like officers got the steel helmets the more important brains got more protection exactly and maybe the other helmets were made of like a less durable but he ended up standardizing like steel helmets but even, and that was like a quick a quick thing that he did but that's just that kind of shows you just like okay i went and served this something almost killed me by hitting me in the head i noticed that this is what saved me none of my other guys have this let's get this going yeah so, well, we got to get this fixed because if we don't get this fixed, we're just going to fail. And like you were talking about with the the output of ships as far as trying to keep ahead of the Germans, mm-hmm. rolling him into that uh, Minister of Artillery or whatever it was. Mr. Munitions. Yeah. Same thing. He, he took the same kind of approach with yeah. that that he did with the same shipbuilding. He wanted to make sure that he stayed ahead of everything mm-hmm. because he knew the benefit that that would cause on the battlefield well and then so two years of doing that then 
another two years later, so in 1919 to 1921, he's made Secretary of State for War and Air. And so he's heavily, heavily involved in World War One. From from like not what am I trying to say? Not an administrative position, but from like a commit a position of command structure. But he also has actual like experience, like on the ground too. That's got to be pretty rare. Yeah, well, and maybe this is just my lack of of reading up on it. But these positions are positions that are given through the military, not through politics, right? They have to. It's like the first Lord of the Admiralty. You have to almost have approval to put them in okay. these positions. Or it's like you voting can, on cabinet positions. Yeah, or you can you can send them to these positions, but here's the thing. Like cabinet positions, your credibility is based upon the people you're putting into these positions. So like, yeah, that party could put anybody in these positions, but if those people fail horribly, it's a knock against that party. And then the other opposing party, like when they kicked him out of the first Lord of the Admiralty, mm-hmm. can put enough pressure on you to make those changes. So I think they're appointed by the governing party, but I think that they can be overturned and they have to be smart moves. You have to be successful at those. Well, and or his, his your party new, will not be in control the next go around. Yeah. His new positions that he's getting may be being given by people that had more of a um I don't know, empathetic view of the decision that he made with Tripoli. Uh, Gallipoli. Gallipoli, yeah. I, I don't... It like maybe they saw it as, hey, he was more justified in what the shit that he took for it. There ended up... He took the full brunt of it for that operation, like he, he did. It There was a... You know when they always do like the commissions, like the Warren Commission mm-hmm. for certain acts? They had a commission that was filed to find out essentially what causes... Because, I mean, it was a huge fuck up. Yeah. Come to find out he wasn't the one that was solely responsible for it, so it dispersed blame. But then okay. it came back at that point that because he took all the blame for it, it actually made him appear in a more positive light, that he would be accountable for stuff. He was willing to jump on the yeah. grenade. And just before, like, I know you have 1925, or sorry, 1924, just before we get to him even moving higher up the chain, um, he writes a six-volume series on World War One. A huge fucking series of books. Um, and then he writes a four-volume series on the Duke of Marlborough, the first one, that are, like, acclaimed. Not his grandfather, the actual first Duke? The actual first okay. Duke. Um, and during this time, I think it was maybe around 24 to 29 when he becomes the chancellor, chancellor of the exchange. I don't even know how to pronounce Exequitur, that. Exequitur, I think, is the word. Yeah. There's this issue about Indian uh, India self-governance, and it ends up passing that they should be able to govern themselves to a degree, and he ends up voting against that. So that's just, again, kind of goes where he saw some of the same beliefs in regards yeah. to that. Uh, do you mind if we take a bathroom break real quick? Yeah, okay. absolutely. All right, while we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business, you can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod. That's historically high pod, and our Twitter is historically high. That's historically hi. All right, and back to our show. All right, and we are back. We're getting into the meat, the deep meaty, meaty I, tissue of fucking Winston's career. Yeah, for as crazy as everything that we've said, this guy's already been in multiple wars. He was a fucking prisoner of war mm-hmm. and then escaped and then had this whole, what could be considered a career 
in he's had two politics. careers. He's had a military career and a political career. And technically point. three because he's writing these books and going on book tours. And a literary career. Yes. Yeah. He's just everywhere. Well, so 1924 to 29, he becomes the chancellor of the how do you executor. Executor. That is literally the second most powerful position below the prime minister in parliament because he's in charge essentially of the economy. Mm-hmm. So like he's just gaining, he, he has all of the, this is where like he's so well-rounded from his skill set. He's now in charge of the economy. Well. He knows about running. Well, hold on. <laughs> He did run it for five years until fucking up what you're going to talk about. Yeah. What I mean, though, is that's why I think what made him such what, – what is can only, I can only describe as the guy for what's going to come is because he has experience with everything. Yeah, uh, and he's – he has that can-do attitude. Like these aren't just positions of name for him. He's actually going – He's stubborn in, as fuck it, and it, not always in a good way. No, no. He definitely uh, – there are some things that he – believes in strongly that don't pan out and uh, possibly the biggest one was i think that this had something to do with coming out of world war one being off of the gold standard Hmm. but he puts them back on the gold standard and basically the gold standard for anybody that doesn't know in america i think we fell off of it in the 70s or 80s but if you take a one dollar bill and you walk into a bank and you slap it down on the table and you say, I want this much in gold, they're, they have to give you back the exact same amount in gold. Like every banknote that we have is backed by the gold standard. So you can just turn any amount of money into gold and vice versa. But how much gold? The same amount as the dollar weighs? Uh, the same amount as the value of it is. So say gold's $1,000 an ounce uh-huh. and you walk in and hand them 100 bucks, they have to give you a tenth of an ounce of gold back. Okay. And... <sighs> When they go into it, um, it just completely tanks the worth of their dollar. And anybody, just because pound gold... sterling, right? Is that um, what they were using at the time? Pound sterling? Could be. I thought I, I think that they still use the British pound. I don't think that they're on the euro system. I thought they were. We're going to have to look at that. Yeah, we'll check that out. But it just completely craters their economy. Their their money is so much more devalued now that they went back onto it. Because I'm sure over wartime, when you are producing, creating so many... There's a reason that the military-industrial complex is a thing. Mm. And it's because during wartime, you ramp up all these different... Um, Industries. Yeah. And so you're making more money. So in turn, your money is worth more. Well, bring them back to the gold standard, drop the value of their money... When you have an economy that's based on a certain value of your currency, and then you go to something less, it just immediately ruins everything. And it did. So he's kind of removed from that role too, as well, right? Yeah. After that, so I think the opposing side probably raised enough of a protest and everything that they had to remove him there. I, I think it was that generally everybody agreed that yeah. this was a a bad offense. <laughs> this. I always enjoy this term when people just go into the wilderness. Yeah, the like, wilderness years. <laughs> the wilderness yeah. years is like, is that your, like you go out to find yourself? Like, did he travel around in the early version? I guess not the VW van. I think maybe that's kind of, they call it your wilderness years because that's just when you're not doing really anything of substance or note. Yeah, you're just out there kind of wandering. Mm-hmm. It's your it's sort of like your wanderlust. Yeah. Like you're traveling around. Mm-hmm. And luckily, he had still had the literary literary career that he did. So he was traveling to America, and this time he was doing tours. He was speaking. he was still a member of parliament. 
Oh, was he? He was still a member because there was – that's one of the big things about him. So, okay, so his parliament career was, I think, 62 years. Yeah, he was – It was 1900 to 1964. He only had a two-year gap where he was not in parliament. So you can be a minor member of parliament, not like a senior member of the party, and still essentially have your wilderness years of when you're not like super active or anything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the early 30s – that's when he began began sounding the alarm against Hitler. And kind of going back to like the student of history thing, he kind of knew what to look for. And he wasn't always right. I'm not saying he's always always right. But he had this knack for being able to kind of foresee someone who was going to be a problem. So like he starts sounding the alarm. Not a lot of people are listening. They, they believe that after what the Treaty of Versailles, mm-hmm. which was meant to prevent the buildup of German Germany's war industry and like ability to make war people didn't believe that they would be in another conflict like that so quickly like the kids that were born during like the first world war would be coming of age just old enough to start fighting in the second one like no one foresaw that the first one was so horrible the only reason that the first one isn't looked at as horrible as it was is because the second one was even more horrible. And it came so fast. And it came so fucking fast. So I don't think it was a combination of people not wanting to even entertain the thought of another world war occurring. Well, we we called World War One the Great War. Yes. So this was something that on the magnitude that nobody had ever seen before. And if you think that that's a once-in-a-lifetime event... You're, you're not planning on the greater war no, after yeah, that. When you call something the Great War, you're not planning on it being trumped by something, what, 20 years later? Well, going back to his viewpoint on India, don't completely quote me on this, but I believe one of his arguments about providing India their own self-governance is he had this weird thing about because there were different cultures within India that they would begin infighting and kind of destroy themselves and kind of get caught into that. There would be a war for independence just like there is everywhere else there's a hierarchy. Yeah, something like that. And because he had these weird like, I don't know if they were outdated or just kind of look down upon beliefs when he started trying to raise the alarm on Germany, that kind of lessened his credibility. You know, if someone has a really unpopular opinion, you're less likely to listen to the other opinions mm-hmm. that they're going to provide, even if those make complete sense. It's kind of what the situation was here It's because everyone, a lot of people felt the majority felt he was wrong on India. They also felt that he might not be exactly correct on like Hitler and Germany. The sort of a Bernie Sanders type situation. Exactly. Um, in 36, uh, Henry VIII becomes the new monarch. He ends up abdicating. I didn't know this, but he ends up abdicating the throne like really quickly. And his younger brother, George VI, takes rule. And because of this happening in England, this happened over the course of like an entire year of trying to figure this whole thing out with like the secession of the monarchy. Mm-hmm. That also provided this huge distraction from Hitler and the Nazis and what they were doing too. Because, you know, of course, Parliament's going to probably be in like a tizzy over like the monarchy and all that kind of stuff. It's going to, any focus drawing away from that is going to be too much focus drawn away from what Germany's doing at this point. Yeah. It's just, it wasn't just England. France was over there. We just signed this gigantic treaty because we just had a world war where there were so many different continents that took part in all this. Mm -hmm. And we just don't have the oversight of Germany to just let this shit happen. And to the point to where by the time, I think people started getting on board, and I think when Germany started taking land and advancing, everybody was just caught by surprise except for Churchill. Churchill knew this was coming. So kind of during Churchill's wilderness years and when he's not like super active, um, Chamberlain 
Neville Chamberlain becomes the prime minister. And he basically has like a policy of appeasement for Germany. That's kind of, you know, the Nazi regime. Um, at this point, Hitler's become chancellor of um, Germany and they've adopted essentially a one party system. So 1933, I believe. Was it 30? I thought, thought it might've been a little bit. That's when I think maybe they, beca- the Nazis became a recognized political party. We're going to have to cover that when we get into yeah. like the rise of that party. But so basically Chamberlain has this thing where he's not, enforcing the treaty of versailles he's not forcing anything he's not like calling up france and being like hey like what the fuck are these guys doing we see that they're you know rearming and they're building stuff and you know materials for war germany's just like no 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 we're just building stuff so we can defend ourselves it's cool and mm-hmm. he's like oh okay is that it and then at some point like during this time churchill's also his most vocal critic for chamberlain and this policy of appeasement in 1938 austria f- is forced to join germany so they they threaten Austria and they're mm. just like, hey, we'll just we're just gonna take you over, or you can just join us. You used to be part of our country anyway, and so they take that. In the fall of thirty eight, Germany demands Czechoslovakia, and Churchill. After this demand is made, Churchill goes directly to Chamberlain. I think he goes like after hours to his actual personal residence to have a talk with him, and he's like, "Don't do this shit." He's like, "You cannot give in. Don't give them an inch. You give them an inch, they're gonna keep pushing and pushing and pushing." Chamberlain, within like I think a week to two weeks, actually flies down to meet with uh, Hitler and signs the Munich Agreement and basically gave this requested land, like in che- or what would later become Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. this land to Hitler in Germany if the Nazis promise that they're not going to make any more land claims. And they're like, okay, we're not going to do any more land claims. And Chamberlain is like, great, I can tell everyone we're good. But he's already at this point had to give up these lands that, you know, weren't Germany, you know, a, a few weeks before. Yeah. Well, and not only is Germany popping off, but Mussolini and Italy are kind of on the same pathway. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mussolini is... There's like a big government shakeup down there with the fascists or something like that. Or Mussolini's been in power for quite a bit. He was the the senior member of the Axis. He was in power, I believe it was 10 years prior to Hitler taking power in Germany. Okay. And so you already see that regime. I'm not sure as far as geographically how close Italy and Germany are. But Mussolini's making some noise. He's starting to threaten Greece. He's starting to try to spread his wings a little bit down mm-hmm. in that area. And that, I believe Chamberlain had sort of like an appeasement treaty with them as well. There was something when Churchill first becomes the, the prime minister, and we'll get to that in a second, where there's this big push that Mussolini has offered to act as an intermediary once they're actually like at war to basically negotiate like a settlement or something. So there's this weird, like still interaction between certain members of the parliament and then like members of like Italian, whatever their version of their, their government would be. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take very long. So that, uh, Munich agreement, um, that's fall 38, March of 39, so literally about three months later, Germany violates the agreement and takes Poland. Oh, how about that? Uh-huh. Or they have plans to take Poland. They basically tell Poland, hey, we're going to, you know, invade you. So Winston Churchill's proven correct about Hitler this entire time. And then on the 1st of September of 39, Germany invades Poland. And then two days later, Britain and France declare war. Very quickly, we went from 
trying to appease and trying to satiate Hitler and Mussolini. And this is before um, Japan really starts popping off, which I found interesting, Churchill's uh, stance on Japan. But we're talking a, a matter of 19, when did World War One end? It was four years. So it started, I just had 1915? No. I actually think it might have ended in 1915. So World War One starts, yeah, 1914. Uh, sorry, 1919, I think, is when it would end. So from 1919 to 1939, we're talking about a matter of 20 years before we have a war dec- declaration from England and France back mm-hmm. onto Germany again. That's, uh, in the span of time, that's very quickly. Well, as soon as they declare war, guess who gets called up to be First Lord of the Admiralty again? Old Winnie. Bring him back. Bring him back. Run it back again, baby. He knows what he's doing. You know, we're going to go ahead and look over. In the meantime, you've kind of been a little bit of the responsibility off that Gallipoli thing has been taken off your back. So I think we'll give you another crack at this. And they go into this thing called, did you read about the phony war? Uh Uh-uh. So like there was this time after Britain and France had declared war against Germany where like not a lot was happening. Like everyone was trying to like feel each other out and see what the next moves would be. And so Britain thought that there was something to do with like Norway because there's so much coastal area there that they would have places to go and manufacture ships, bring in supplies, all that kind of stuff. So there was this like time period of it might have been even like like two years or something where there wasn't really a lot of action done. Like Germany was still building up its production and getting ready to do certain things. And then England really wasn't making any moves. I think they had sent, at that point, like the British Expeditionary Force, which was like 350,000 people, into uh, France to establish positions or to take certain areas. Probably reinforce them. Try to, yeah, just play the defense at that point. So there was a plan to defend Norway. Well, what ends up happening in spring of 1940 is the Nazis invent, invade Denmark and then take over Norway. And at this point because there had been such a focus on that of trying to defend Norway because they kind of knew what was going to happen and everything, there was a big call for Chamberlain to to resign. Because he still gets to call the majority of the shots. And, and everything. his appeasement deals have fucked up. Mm-hmm. It, all the, the agreements trying to satiate Germany has proved that that's just not possible. Yeah. And so he resigns on the 9th of May in 1940, and on the 10th of May, that's when Churchill is made prime minister. And he was really the only guy that they could get into this role that had enough loyalty from both sides of both parties to to be agreed upon, to be the prime minister within this time. I don't really think his resume needed to go ahead and do anything else here. I mean, he had been a wartime commander during World War One. He has served in so many various roles that he knows the ins and outs of a lot of different areas. And and he was the one, he was basically one of the sole people that was like, Hitler's bad. What the fuck are we doing here? Yeah, he, for my understanding, he was brought in as like a wartime prime minister Mm -hmm. because him and Neville had had their kind of ups and downs about appeasement and that type of thing. But he actually kept Neville as a part of like his parliamentary prime minister cabinet. And Neville was more of like, he handled the stuff at home. Mm-hmm. Like he was dealing more with the people while Winston was focused solely basically on the war. Yeah. He created a multi-party war cabinet. So it, he had it like, was like pe- five people. Yeah. yeah. And he had people from each of the, like the political like parties 
in there. So everyone felt like every party felt like they kind of had a voice or had information on, on what was going on, which was enormous because that helped galvanize him essentially as being the leader. It made everyone feel like they had a common goal. They all had a voice in what was going yeah. on. Um, the same day that he gets elected prime minister, Germany invades Belgium, Luxembourg, and Netherlands. Bad luck. Yeah, not not good. Couldn't have done it a day earlier or a day later. Uh, and that their advancement, it's tough to realize how fast Germany advanced mm-hmm. on some of these places. And granted, it's because... That's why they called it a blitzkrieg, man. Lightning yeah, war. They, they didn't have a standing military, anything like that. And I think some of these places probably. So it was fairly easy to take them over. But yeah, like you say, the Blitzkrieg. I think was, it, I think more of it was that it was a combination of even if they had a prepared military or a standing military, in order, you still have to be able to gather them in a location. They may be standing, but they're spread out throughout different areas in your country. Mm. That's the big thing with the French is in World War II, the French got overrun so quickly is because the German, that whole Blitzkrieg thing... Hairball. I just swallowed my lifesaver. Um, (laughs) Don't choke on your lifesaver. No, it was small enough, thank God. Um, That, you know, France is huge. And when they, while they were invading just across like the Maginot line, the border of Germany and France, they still had a huge sections of their soldiers down in like the South of France to help protect them against like Mussolini, if anything happened down there. And so they were able to capture a huge swath of France before the French military was even able to mobilize. And at that point, if they've captured certain key territories and everything, they're not going to, even once you get your troops there, they're not going to do much good. They're just going to be late to the party. The whole point though, is that all of this, there had to be lead up to all of this. So it's not like Germany, just like all of a sudden, like tanks and shit just exploded out of the ground. Like they were making all this for a long time. They were having planes made. So, a lot of this Treaty of Versailles stuff, they were able to get away with because they were designing planes that they were like, no, they're passenger planes. Like, look, these are, but they were so easy to be configured and modified into bombers. They only had to switch around like a fuselage and all of a sudden this wasn't a passenger plane anymore. It was a high level bomber or something. They were um, developing, they had sport flying clubs. Yeah. Because they weren't gone. allowed to have a military yep. to be, or an Air Force to be able to train. So they were training fighter pilots through these sport training clubs. So these fighter pilots had years of experience doing all this stuff. Not maybe so much actual you know, combat experience, but they were able to go ahead and be excellent pilots by the time they actually launched this, um, you know, this conquest. But, I mean, early on, Churchill did not have it easy, especially when the Ew. Germans pushed in through France so easily that... Basically, all 350,000 soldiers of the British Expeditionary Force were pinned against the ocean at this place called Dunkirk on the coast of France. And it's basically like if you're looking at a map between France and England, it's not the closest area, but I mean, it's still reachable by boat and everything. It's on that side of the coast. And they had soldiers at – did you read any about Dunkirk? No, I wanted to hear you explain it. They also controlled Calais, which was a few, I don't know exactly, it might have been like 20, 30, 40, 50 miles down the coast, but like further east down the coast, so closer to Britain. And It was a landing point on D-Day, wasn't it? It was one that they had kind of um, kicked around with the idea because it had deep water ports, but it was too heavily defended oh, by okay. the Germans. But they had a garrison of like 5,000 British soldiers at Calais. 
and then 350,000 in Dunkirk that were stranded, oh, not wow. enough boats getting them out. So Churchill and his cabinet basically had to come up with the decision of saying, telling the commanding officer at Calais, you need to go ahead and provoke the German forces and get them to focus on you for as much time as possible to give us a chance to try to evacuate or figure out a plan for these 350, like your 5,000 is going to try to buy time for this 350,000. And that's not a quick exit strategy with 350,000 soldiers. And I'm not sure who was the mastermind behind it. Of course, Churchill gets some, you know, credit because he's the one that approved the plan. And it even sounded a little crazy is that, Instead of to get these soldiers off, he basically put out a call to every single vessel in Britain, luxury yachts, pleasure crafts, anything over, I think I want to say 50 feet. He put in a call for people to go to Dunkirk and to pick up soldiers. Hell yeah. And they called them the little boats of Dunkirk. And so during over the course of, I think, three days, there were enough boats that it got like 320,000 plus soldiers from Dunkirk back to England. Huh. <coughs> now, that was the entire British military at that point. Had they lost that, they would have had no bargaining chips to defend against invasion either. Well, that's... I can't imagine just the... To come into power as a prime minister, I don't know if that was like a a goal for his entire life was to get into that position. But as it, you're, it was, he made some weird comment. Oh when he was yeah. A kid. He was destined to lead during like the hardest time or something. Yeah. Like that. yeah. It, it, he had made some sort of premonition that that was what he had been given. But his first years as prime minister, he watched a, a country who probably didn't have the same might as England fall to the Germans. He watched France give up. France was supposed France was supposed to have the strongest standing military of any country in Europe. And that's why it was such a shock when they ended up surrendering. Is he's like, you guys have like the longest or you guys have the largest military and you just got spanked. Uh, maybe you can shed some light on it because I heard about it but not a whole lot. Um there was a point in time when after France had either fallen or they were in the process of falling that uh, Winston told the leader of France, he's like, hey, your guys' Navy fleet is still out there. Go ahead and bring them to mm-hmm. Britain and we will use them to strengthen our Navy and we will be able to fight against the Germans. If you leave them there, the Germans are going to be able to take those boats and mm-hmm. they'll be able to use them in their Navy and Churchill assigned a bombing raid. Yeah. So basically what happened is when um, uh, France surrendered to Germany, you had this area of southern France that was still under control. Have you ever heard of the Vichy French? Uh, yeah. That, that, okay. Yeah. Okay. So the, mil- the Navy was in the control of the Vichy French and it was parked in – fuck. It was parked in a – it would be a Middle Eastern port at this point. I can't remember which country. That's where it was stationed. And the Germans came to an agreement that they would um, like keep fighting against the Vichy French, 
but that the VC French couldn't help or do anything like mm-hmm. that. So they're not like, hey, we're going to just give you the Navy or anything like that. But they told Churchill, they're like, no, we can't send the ships here because that'll be violating the terms that we just made with the Germans and we can't, then they'll just conquer all of France. Yeah. They, they were going to plan on doing that anyway. They were just not create like creating active war against the Vichy French. They're like, you, we're still going to rule you, but we're just not going to try to come kill you. That's the thing that I don't fucking understand is why is everybody trying to give Germany the benefit of a doubt after seeing all this, after seeing the Blitzkrieg and everything else? Why the fuck are you just like, hey, we decided that we pounded out You're this. You're trying not to get your civilians killed. Disagree. I get that. But you have to know that it's just a matter of time. Just like. And if you don't Churchill have, knew. yeah, and if you don't have the strength to even fight against them, long story short, what Churchill ended up doing was he was like, sorry, sorry, old boy, but he's like, well, if you aren't going to give us those ships, we definitely can't have the Germans getting those ships. So yeah, he sent a bombing raid. No, no, he sent in ships, I think. Was it? It was a fleet and they ended up engaging with the French fleet. And I think it ended up killing like 1300 French uh, sailors. I thought it was more than that. I thought it was like multiple thousands. I, I saw the number. It might have injured a lot more than yeah. that, but I saw like 1,300 actual like deaths or casualties. Well, and then the Germans used that to their advantage because the Germans tried to start spreading propaganda oh, within yeah. the Vichy saying, hey, they attacked mm-hmm. you guys. So are we really the bad people in this situation? Exactly. Which is great PR for the Germans, but it was really the Vichy leaders. It's just denying the spoils of war. It's like you can look at it and be like, yeah, but you guys also like could have just called your soldiers off the boats yeah. and been like, yeah, you guys destroyed them. Hey, we didn't help them destroy them or anything like that, but you know there could have been something there. They actually even fired on each other, so it was like the Vichy French were firing on huh. the British ships too. Wow. So, but I mean, at this point, like Churchill and England are standing alone. Like he's he's reached out for aid to the United States. Um, so FDR. FDR knew we were going to have to go to war. He was even in favor for us going to war. But the American opinion, because of World War One, just being so close, yeah, was that this years. is this is a European problem. This is not a problem for us to intervene in again. And so he couldn't even get to the point where he was providing aid or anything like that yet to um, England. So literally, Churchill has his navy and has the Royal Air Force, and is basically the only thing kind of standing between, you know, freedom in Europe and total third Reich domination. Well, Churchill had this weird belief that Japan would never be a player. Like he didn't think that they were going to join the Axis. Is that sort of what it was? He didn't think that they would ever be a threat in the second world war. I don't know if it, it ever really occurred to him. I don't know if his, I mean, I'm sure he was aware of what was going on there and, like, also, like, the disputes between, you know, America and for the oil embargoes and shit like that. He probably had a general idea because they did have, like, in Singapore, I think Singapore was a it was, British yeah, it was stronghold. British. Yeah. So he obviously had some knowledge of what was going on, but I don't think that that was his focal point at that point. I think he was trying to figure out what's happening at home and then he would work, figure that out. Because I know they also did have some ships down in that area mm. and everything. Um the Blitz, basically the bombing of London and the British home miles. Battle of Britain. Yep. Um, that was between like 40 and 41. And that was during 40 he gives, that's when he gives his like three big speeches and everything. Like we will fight in the air. We will fight on the beaches in the land and all that. We'll never surrender. He gives three of those types of speeches in 1940. And 
pretty much and public opinion in in Britain was also like this as well. It wasn't like he was going against the will of the people. It was almost like the other people in parliament that were really pushing for him during this time to enter into like negotiations with Hitler and basically more appeasement and all this kind of stuff. Like, how do you not realize the ramifications of that? Like they're going to tell you that you have to disarm yeah. and everything. And then what's to stop them after you're disarmed from com- coming in and conquering your way. They, they have the rest of, you know, the European peninsula. Or you're just the, sitting ducks. Exactly. And for some reason, Churchill had people within his own cabinet saying that they should, you know, negotiate for peace terms with Hitler. At this point, he was like, nah, we're not going to do that. So he really galvanized the opinion also of like the British people with these speeches that, you know, surrender was not an option, that they were all that was standing between, you know, the free world and, and darkness and everything. So gets, you know, through the blitz. Um, the well, <laughs> God damn, that was a deep one. But... To talk about the Blitz a little bit, I think I told you I just, I had no idea really how the Battle of Britain played out. And, (coughs) excuse me, the Blitz sort of started because the Germans tried to basically just overrun the RAF. They tried to completely shut them down and shut them out, so it was more of like a battle between the RAF and the Luftwaffe. It was... It was basically the Battle of Britain was all a lead up to establish in order for Germany, which had taken over France and, you know, was ready and reinforcing itself along the Atlantic Wall, for them to invade the British Home Isles, they had to establish superiority over the channel. They first had to control the channel, then they had to control the skies. And so until they controlled those two, what would end up happening is if they tried to launch an invasion, all the British would have to do is basically just fly bombers and bring the Navy into the channel. It's a short little pl- yeah. straight and everything yeah, and just be able to pick them off. So the Blitz was to basically – it served twofold. One, it was to try to draw out the RAF and their fighter aircraft and basically just through attrition and all these missions because when you're bringing over bombers – you have fighters escorting them. Mm-hmm. Their jobs are to engage the other fighters who in turn are trying to shoot down the bombers. So through the war of attrition, they were basically trying to grind down both the morale by bombing England and also remove their ability to make air combat. You kind of mentioned this the other um, when we were texting the other day about like the overestimation and underestimation. Yeah. So Britain overestimated the Germans' ability to replace aircraft losses and manufacture aircraft the Germans underestimated Britain's ability to create these aircraft because they weren't creating them. They had some aircraft factories, mm-hmm. but during certain points of World War II, they were assembling like different components of the aircraft in these small like villages and towns and then shipping them to be assembled. And then instead of having huge airfields, they would have like these airfields of like 10 or you know 20 planes scattered over a huge region. So regardless of where the Germans were coming in to do their bombing runs, there were planes close by to like meet up and try to hmm. meet them head on and take them out before okay. they were able to get into like populated areas. So it was just sort of like under the cover or under the veil of space that they were creating these planes that Germany didn't know about. Yeah. The other thing too is so Germany in, in the beginning had the better air force. They had more training cause they had helped fight um, in the Spanish, Spanish civil war. Mm-hmm. So, but what they didn't really, and when they were flying over, you know, fighting with the French Air Force and everything, if they lost a plane and a pilot had to bail out, chances are he would be able to bail out 
over friendly German area occupied area or find his way back to the German lines. Yeah. If you're fighting over the channel or you're fighting over Britain and you get shot down. Water enemy lines. Water or you're behind enemy lines. So they might have been able to meet the demand for aircraft, but for experienced pilots, yeah. they were losing on that front too. And they lost in the channel too, didn't they? Because they didn't. Like, they didn't have a massive naval fleet of, like, carriers to drop off soldiers. Yeah, they were having to try to, like, piecemeal together, like, giant, like, barges to try to pull them across and everything like that. Like, with Germany, Germany has, um, where it would, like, manufacture its battleships would be, like, in Germany on, like, the Rhine River. And then it would have to send the battleships up the river just to then get into, like the North Atlantic and everything. And then they would have to make like, after they had conquered France, they would have to make these things called the channel dash where they would have to send these warships to try to like send them really quick through the narrow gap in the English channel to like a friendly French port, German friendly, or Mm -hmm. send them up to like Norway or something like that. So it's not like they have this huge coastal area to begin building barges and landing craft. Yeah. They're just running the risk through the channel of not being bombed. Yeah. And after the battle of Britain, so it was called operation sea lion was supposed to be the British, the invasion of the British islands. Mm -hmm. And I think as soon as the battle of Britain ended and everything, they had to end up calling that off because they figured they're like, we, there's not a way that we can establish air superiority over Britain in the channel. Well, and that's where I think, Churchill, I'm not really a believer in premonition, but this makes me more of a believer, was after they had tried to take out the military might to do it that way, then Hitler and the Third Reich just immediately were like, okay, we can't take them out militarily, we're going to try to grind down these people. And these bombing raids that started happening after there was like the open air combat and the Mm -hmm. sea combat were just specifically targeting Basically, like factories, so they could try to knock out their powers of reproduction or production. Mm-hmm. But it was just like neighborhoods, like it was they were just bombing these people. And for those people that were in Britain at the time that were just being bombed and blown up and just torn to shit, for them to still have the belief in Churchill to be like, hey, we need to keep fighting. Churchill had to be the guy to give those speeches to get those people to have enough resolve to be like, I understand that my whole housing area just got blown up and yeah, I didn't like, die. Can you imagine like the terror of like night bombing? You're yeah. just there sleeping and all of a sudden you just hear the... You're never sleeping ever because you're no. just always trying to anticipate trying to get away from that. You go outside and all you see is spotlights and you see the anti-aircraft fire going up, but then you can hear like <laughs> the buzz of the planes above you and you're just like, so am I just running and the bombs going to end up landing on? Like that's got to be just fucking terrifying. But to keep like the morale of your like people up yeah. and them being like, I know this is horrible, but we cannot give in. Like if you think this is bad, like living under these people would be even worse. This is what we're doing while we're at war. Imagine what happens when they take total control. Yeah, It it just completely blows me away. And some of his speeches that he gave were just so... After the Battle of Britain happened, I think he was over in Canada when he gave the Some Chicken speech. Mm -hmm. And basically, after he criticized the French for giving up and basically letting Germany take them over, Mm -hmm. the German chancellor or whatever he was said something like, just wait in a month's time. Um, Britain will die the death of like a chicken being choked yeah. or some shit like that. And after the battle of Britain was over, Churchill was over in Canada and he gives a speech, some chicken and he stands up and his first line is some chicken, huh? And then he goes, 
didn't get our next rung like we thought we did or something like that. Yeah. And it was just like a direct shot at the, the French minister or whoever said that. Yeah. It was like, bro, you guys gave up. We withheld bombings of our entire mm-hmm. cities. I mean, there's something to say too, like France being like landlocked, connected with Germany, everything like yeah. that. But still, like you had the largest army at that point. And yeah, and then you did like nothing in preparation for this. Like you're the ones closer, so you should have known what they were doing even more so than us. This falls squarely on your shoulders mm-hmm. because you guys share a border. Like you need to have some sort of periphery around yeah. your country. Like, especially because you're going to be the first ones fucking taken over. Yeah. Like, why aren't you on higher alert? You're, yeah, like you say, you're the first line of defense, Mm -hmm. which means that you're the first line that's going to get fucked if you can't defend that. You need to be in charge of everything and be watching over them very closely. Um, It just weren't. um, March 41, that's when the Lend-Lease Act comes in. So this is what was signed between America and Britain before we were actually in the war. Again, this is March 41. So the Lend-Lease Act was an agreement we signed with Britain that allowed the United States to remain neutral in the war, but to provide food, fuel, and war materials to Britain. So not really being neutral. We're sending them everything <laughs> basically to fight. Um, and this is when we start the, you know, the Nazi U-boat wolf packs coming because we're sending just these huge shipping convoys over there. And is this, it was, when did you say in 41? That was March 41. So how close to... Um, Pearl Harbor was that? Well, that was December 41. Okay, so this was prior to we started... Yeah, we didn't come in, so this will be March is the third month, so nine months away, we're going to be in this. Okay. Um, In the summer of 41, so apparently Hitler had had enough trying to uh, take over Great Britain, so in the summer of 41, that's when he decides it's time to fucking launch the invasion of the Soviet Union. Or Russia. So that's when he opens up his Eastern Front and starts doing that, which we all know that turned out. Mm-hmm. Um, December in 41, big year 41. Uh, uh, Pearl Harbor yeah, happens. and Before Pearl Harbor, something, I just not to cut you off, um, August 41, Churchill and Roosevelt signed what's known as the Atlantic Charter. Mm-hmm. And the Atlantic Charter laid down the blueprints for the United Nations. Okay. So Churchill even had that effect of not just like during the war. Had the foresight of saying we need something in place after this thing's over. Yeah. Because there was something. What was it? It was the League of Nations. I think it was. That was established after World War I. He's like, this league did fucking nothing. He's like, we need to set the groundwork for something that's going to be effective. He already had plans at that point. He's like, I'm setting this up, us up to win the war. This is going to be our plan after we win this thing. We're not seeing World War Three. Yeah. We're making sure that there's something in the way that's an impediment to it. Yeah. So just like his fingerprint still, World War Two, huge fingerprint over, but something that we still see today that's still working is wasn't enacted because he had the foresight to be like, mm-hmm. we can't keep doing this. Like these wars aren't good for anybody. So yeah, so summer 41, Nazis invade Russia, December uh in 41 is when Pearl Harbor occurs and that's what is you know forces America into World War 2. Man, can you I don't think anything else could have made him happier. <laughs> it's I a, mean, I'm sure he wishes it was a smaller event that didn't, you know, cripple our navy no. for a little while in the Pacific and everything, but the fact that at that point he I'm trying to remember what he said. He he said like as soon as like America came in, it was like the beginning of the end or something like that for for the Axis. I think not that he was happy that it was the size of the 
atrocity that yeah. it was. But had it been something lesser, like had they had only killed like a hundred sailors or whatever, a hundred military members, I don't know if that would have been enough provocation to enter the war. I think there had to have been a certain number of loss that happened that made it necessary for them or made it necessary for us to enter the war. So like, I'm sure when he got that call, he probably knew just because him and Roosevelt had had so many other meetings that Roosevelt was in for it. Yeah. He knew about it before he called Roosevelt. He called Roosevelt and he's like, is it true? And he's like, yeah, it's true. He's like, all right. He somehow convinced too, like during some of their first meetings when they were figuring out how to approach the entire situation now that the entire world was literally like in this is he did a great job. And I think it probably might've been a combination between him and Stalin, which they had a fucking weird ass relationship and everything. <laughs> yeah. But very um, weird. Stalin's one of the weirdest guys in history. Yes. They were able to essentially convince Roosevelt be like, listen, Germany has got to be the, got to be the focal point here. And Roosevelt was on board. He's like, yep, we'll take it. Let's go ahead and take care of uh, Europe first, and then we'll figure out what to do about Japan. But even at that point, because I think Roosevelt was talking to him, and he's like, well, you know, how are you guys doing down in the Pacific? He's like, Singapore will never fall. And then something <laughs> ended up happening in which that didn't look good on Roosevelt is um, Singapore was uh, British held. It was heavily defended and they were so so prepared for like a naval bombardment and it couldn't be like invaded from the sea well they didn't anticipate that the japanese army could cross this like narrow land bridge they didn't think any army could cross it well they ended up doing it and attacking singapore from like another direction and it was just a fucking blowout they said it was actually singapore the loss of singapore might be the greatest like blunder in like british Really? British, like, history for, like, huh. combat history or something like that. Do you think when Roosevelt agreed, like, hey, Germany's got to be the focal point and then we'll take care of Japan, that Roosevelt already was like, we got something for these Japanese people. Don't you worry. We're creating a bomb. Hey, I'm not going to bore you with the details yet, but I got this guy named John Oppenheimer. I got something for Japan coming. Like, let's focus on Germany. We'll wipe out Japan later. I think Japan being so far from the United States, you know, we have our entire, like for them to make war, for them to make war on continental United States was a long way away at that point. So I think that was probably helped to make it be like a focal point and everything. With Japan, we don't have to fuck with an air force or a military. All we have to focus on is the Navy because there's such a distance. And they would still have to bring the Navy all the way this way. And we can build, you know, all that kind of stuff. Speaking of, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and everything. So FDR, that's his thing. Or no, who ended up calling for that? That was Truman. Yes. yes it was Truman that called for that. The development of it was under mm-hmm. FDR though. Churchill kind of had his own version of that with Dresden and the bombing of Dresden. Oh, Dresden. Yeah. 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 Oh, Dresden. Yeah. Sorry. So, um, there was a couple different, like with bomber planes, they had these things called bomber theory and they would be like the, you know, pinpoint bombing or blanket area bombing, like these thoughts about how they should go about it. Well, like different ones, like 
pinpoint bombing isn't effective because you're missing your target because you're trying to hit these. Mm-hmm. You don't get as much damage. The success rate's lower. Blanket bombing, you're going to have more success because you're launching more bombs over a larger area, but you're going to kill civilians. Uh, so you're fishing with dynamite. Exactly. It's these different schools of thought and then everything in between. So Churchill, at a certain point in the war, was like a proponent of like blanket bombing. At At that point, like you've seen your own country get bombed a shit ton and everything you're literally fighting against an enemy that's caused how much death and destruction up at this point um there was a city called dresden and they bombed it with incendiaries so like instead of just being like bombs that are going to destroy things incendiaries are going to destroy it plus they're going to catch everything on fire so they firebomb the city they firebombed the city of dresden and like the initial reports were that it could be like up to like 80,000 civilians were killed and everything like that. They've come back and said, I'm not making an excuse for the numbers because any, you know, it's, it's terror bombing and everything is basically what it was. Um, but they is ended it? up coming back. It was during a war. It is, but here's the thing too. Like looking at everything, would you want that done against your cities? No, like, no. So that's kind of what I'm saying is it's questionable. But at the same time, jur- you know, this was also at a time when like, we didn't know a lot about Germany's atrocities and everything like that. Yeah. So in comparison, Dresden is just against Churchill in, in comparison to what he's done. It's the most extreme thing that he's probably done. Well, and quote me if I'm wrong, because I, I really might be, wasn't Dresden one of the towns that Hitler like assured them that they would never be bombed. Because there were towns that there Hitler's were certain like, towns that got called off because of like their cultural or their historical significance, and I think Dresden was one of those. And so they just assured them that they would never be bombed. But then Churchill doing that kind of flew in the face of the promise that Hitler made for his people. Yeah, because they bombed London too, and London's a heavy civilian population. Oh, yeah. So I think it was just Churchill being like, "We can get fucking dirty too if we have to," but still, in the grand scope of wanting to be like the winners and try to keep your hands as clean as possible and win the war in the most noble way. It doesn't look good in that, in that that's, that's a tactic that your enemy would use that you would expect your enemy to use. I think it's yeah. the biggest knock on it. I guess I just look at it differently. Like you're saying, man though, like it's war at that point. Like it's the whole rationale behind using the atomic bomb. How many is this event going to be <laughs> the c- contributing factor that ends the war? Are they going to be like, this is bad we surrender. That's what I mean. Like the whole rationale with the atomic bombs was we can do this and show them that we can inflict this amount of damage because we could have bombed, I think they said like five to six more cities in Japan. And at that point we would have had the um, estimated casualties of an invasion of Japan. Okay. So that means that I owe you an apology. Because during the atomic bomb episode, I was the opposite way of saying, hey, maybe this was a little bit overkill, and you were the one that was justifying what I just tried to do with the bombing in Dresden. You're correct? The atomic bomb wasn't too much? I'm saying, I'm saying, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that, like, we don't really know. Like, it's all, it's all a matter of circumstance, like... What if they wouldn't have given up and it would have taken us? How many cities would we have bombed before they finally gave up? Would it have to be three more than the projection of the amount of casualties had we invaded Japan? Because then we're talking about something completely different. So it's just – 
it's one of those things. Here's the thing. The reason why it looks as bad as it does is because we were the good guys in World War II. We weren't supposed to do bad guy shit. But sometimes in order to do that, to win the war, you do have to do... You got to get in the mud. You, you do have to get in the mud. And okay. so, but, you know, if that's one of the bigger knocks against Churchill, he's still got enough stuff that he did that that's not going to overshadow anything. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not hanging anything on him because desperate times call for desperate mm-hmm. measures. And when you're living through the blitz, there's going to be a lot of ideas that sound good to you. Um, Churchill visited Normandy a couple days after D-Day. How crazy is that? He said that he wanted to be there before he actually visited. He said he uh, wanted to be there the day of. Did you hear the fucking king said he yeah. was going to do that? I don't know if the king meant it, but he did it to prove a point to Churchill. He's just like, I don't want you to be there before I'm there. No, no, no. So Churchill was like, I'm going to be with the first wave in one of the landing craft when we land on this beach. And people are like, no, you're not. You're fucking crazy. And so he went in like the him and the king had weekly meetings. I love that. that they had lunch like every Thursday. Yeah, I and Churchill would drink during his the, their of fucking lunch. Of course lunches. he would. He would yeah. drink during every meal. Um, <laughs> he would drink during breakfast. Yeah, but during one of the conversations, the king was like, "You know, as a beacon to my people, I think that I need to be on one of the landing craft in the first one as a symbol to the people that I'm fighting for them." And he's like, "Sir, he's like I." He's like, that's ridiculous. He's like, you don't think anyone would actually let you do that? And then he just kind of looked at him. He's like, and next to me, you're the second most important person. Do you really see anybody letting you do that? Oh, because he said something like you were the head member of the five-person war cabinet. Yeah. And so he he basically proved a point. He's like, yeah, do you see how stupid you sound <laughs> when you're saying something like this? Like you're going to go. He's like, actually, I'm probably more physically capable of storming the beach than you are. Well, and so much like the Civil War mm-hmm. with Lincoln going and sitting at Jefferson Davis's uh, desk, yeah, you see him wanting to be there to be like, D-Day, I had my reservations about it. It mm-hmm. wasn't something that I really fully agreed to, but it's going to fucking work, and I want to be on the first ship over there. Like He wanted to show that power to lead from the front, and I'm sure most of that was just how much time that he spent in the military that he like he had desires to be back into it because he clearly yeah. enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to be out there. I wonder if like I I know that he wanted to like inspire and be out there and everything, but I wonder if he had a little bit of a um like an invulnerability complex. Yeah. Like if he hadn't been wounded up to this point or really seriously hurt, he was drinking like he does and it wasn't knocking him out of commission or any type of thing like that. <laughs> he I don't realized know if he that just alcohol thought, couldn't even affect it. Yeah, I don't know if he just kind of had a little bit of a thought that he was a little bit invulnerable. Like some of the stuff he said makes me kind of think like he had that air about him. He was just the king of invincibility. Yeah. And I mean, during during World War II, him and Stalin and Roosevelt meet at all these different conferences like at Tehran and... Um, like, How does that work? How are you just at war? I, I guess Stalin being on our side, but there were so many things, and he was even kind of at the forefront of this, and I'm sure it's because he met Stalin a lot, mm-hmm. because after the war was over, he's like, yo, next issue, USSR. Yeah. There, it wasn't like a resting period, and nah. I think and I think that led, that might have led to him not getting that re-election. Okay. Right after. Um, yeah. So he had met Stalin enough during their conferences and everything um, to know that after this got taken care of, I mean, it was a marriage of convenience, mm-hmm. like the enemy of my enemy type 100%. deal. It wasn't like he like, Hey Joe, a, hey, a hey. no, like, 
America and Britain, that was a mutually yeah. benefit. Like Ru- Russia was just something like, I'll deal with you later, but I need your help for now. <laughs> and so like during their meetings, like yeah, him and Stalin, they kept the, you know, the peace. allies together and everything like that and kept the peace. But yeah, that entire time you could just see the the wheels working with Churchill because as soon as World War II ended and everything, his focus went straight to combating communism. Well, and it makes so much sense that you would say that that's why he has that kind of cooling period between his PM runs is he was, like you say, he was the one that focused on the next enemy because he was looking for the next person that he had to fight off, whereas everybody else was trying to be like, let's chill out for so a second. The, the way that he thinks about it, though, makes complete sense. So in post-World War II, so Germany ends up surrendering, like, what, a week after Hitler shoots himself? Uh, it or escaped. Because this was the other cool thing. Um, where was it? Oh, um, May 7th, 1945. He was actually the one that got on the airwaves mm-hmm. and broadcast the surrender. He talked Germany. to people on the airwaves. He gave speeches on the airwaves all the time. Yeah. So, like, he, he wanted to be the one to give the people the good news. He was the one that was out there on the forefront giving these speeches to mm-hmm. try to give them hope. He wanted to be the one to deliver the news of victory. And that's so cool, just and so deserving and so fitting. He went and crossed the Rhine River in Germany in March 1945. Like, he wasn't, like, I mean, he was far from the front line, but he would, like, f- go into, like, uh, the zones that they had just, like, the Allies had just taken over. So he was definitely, like, wanting to be, I think he wanted to, you know, ingratiate himself. He wanted to, to be was, one of the boys again. He did. He wanted to be eternally one of the boys. Um, so post-World War II, you know, when you are Germany and you've taken over that much area, what you have at that point is France is like, no, we know where France is. We're keeping all of France. Germany has like certain areas taken from it that they had conquered. And then I think we were talking about this earlier. There was this weird like rule that wherever you had been like for the last year of the campaign, that country was going to be under your influence. Mm-hmm. So Russia had pretty much pushed in everything like toward the West all the way up to Germany and then like was fighting in like the Baltic area. And then even like down, were they down toward the Middle East? I want to say Pakistan might have been. But they area. still had a lot of influence in yeah. that whole area and everything. So you had all these countries that were now going to be under the influence of communism. So essentially within the fell swoop of Germany being defeated, you then were making communism that much stronger because you were providing all these additional areas to a country that that was their deal. Yeah. And then you had the other countries that were trying to be held on to by like the United States and Britain, not like from a sovereignty perspective, but to have their influence. So like Greece and Italy and all that kind of stuff to keep all that stuff from gaining hold there. Well, and you still had, even after the loss of world war two, he was already in the cold war. Yeah. World war two ends. And for Winston Churchill, the cold war began right then. Yeah. There was no, no lapse in timing or anything like that. He started building towards the cold war kind of, I'm sure when he was meeting with Stalin, like he just, he knew, he knew that if victory, if they could get over the hump in world war two, he was shaking his had, hand, making notes with the other uh-huh, about exactly. this guy. Yes. Um, before we keep going, one more bathroom break. This one's run a little long, but it would be great. Stick with us. All right. Be back. All right. And we're back for the home stretch. 
this yeah, is for, the victory lap for for Winston Churchill. The real fun stuff. So he ends up coming back in was nineteen fifty one. In fifty one. So the reason he doesn't get you would think that like the guy that just led you literally through like the darkest time in your country's recent memory, shoe in for another yeah. Keep him in that position. Well, right after the war, apparently, and this makes sense, there was a movement within like British politics where there was a party that was gaining traction and basically they implemented social services, uh, welfare, like um, state run um, health care, stuff like that. And because Good of stuff. Huh? <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah. And because they were coming off the, a war when everyone had rationed and suffered and all that kind of stuff, it, it sounded so good that apparently that party that was in support of it, they ended up winning. So you have to be the the major controlling party for the member to be the prime minister. That's uh-huh. the controlling party. So they gained enough power where they were able to then like appoint like their own prime minister. And so that's how Winston Churchill launched that. It, I mean, crazy. Like everyone just assumed he was going to be a shoon, but the people are like, we've just been at war for like four years. Some civil services or some social services sound pretty fucking good. Well, and I think part of that too <laughs> may have been a – not necessarily a Winston choice because I'm sure he just would have preferred to stay in power, but he was kind of like I talked about. He was a a prime minister that was like a wartime prime minister. Yeah. And now that war was coming to an end, and they needed to look back towards more of like a Neville Chamberlain, take care of the people type mm-hmm. prime minister. He may have served his purpose to get them through the war. But he wasn't going to be able to serve the purpose to help people, which I disagree with because I think that he's done a lot of good things for the people previously to the war. Well, and during that time, he also didn't. It's not like he got kicked out of politics. He was the leader of the opposing political party during that time, too. So that was at the time when he was starting to – he gave his information. That's when he gave his, like, Iron Curtain speech about Stalin and, like, socialism and everything or communism um, in Europe. So, I mean, he was very active during that time frame. But then, yeah, in 51, he comes back around and um, essentially, despite like losing the popular vote to the Labor Party, the conservatives won an overall majority and they were able to go ahead and then install Winston Churchill as the prime minister again. So he had a second. They took enough seats for power of Mm -hmm. parliament. It's uh, to me, just doing quick math, 1951. So it's 51 years plus 26 years of him being born in 1874. He's 77 when he takes office for the second time. Yeah, which it will ultimately come to like his his sort of age and state and not necessarily failing health, but his health issues as to why he he doesn't run again. Yeah, but I mean that math to me. I don't know. I know that Biden's old. I know that Trump's old. But they got to be older than this, right? Uh, I think they're around that same same age and everything. Okay, so maybe it's not a leap to be like we're they're seeing in politics like, that these people are being older. This guy and older. drinks so much though. So how many? You know, yeah, he's how definitely. Many years does that add on to his life? Been or rode like hard and put away. Wait, but he made it to ninety. I know. So like seventy-seven, he takes office again. He'd have like minor strokes even up to this point. And they were just kind of thinking they're like, he'll probably serve due to his like declining health. Even like King George thought that he was going to stand down after like maybe a year or two. Yeah. And he was like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that. And so um, on uh, in June of 53, he suffered like a serious stroke and had like paralysis on one side. 
still didn't still didn't back down and uh there was also wasn't there a a hierarchical change wasn't didn't the king die and then elizabeth ii took over i'm not sure let's see i thought it had happened kind of right in the middle of that there was something about him being knighted so yeah. he was knighted sir winston oh in 53 yeah so it was knighted. april 24th 1953 yep. he was knighted became sir Winston Churchill. Yeah, it was widely expected that he would retire after the Queen's coronation in June 53. That's what it was. But then, like, literally, it just caused... It didn't, it didn't retire him. It just caused him to have a stroke. <laughs> it's like the Queen, he was so oh, shocked. God. He was fucking paralyzed him on one side. But seriously, he ended up, like, almost making, like, a full recovery by, like, November. And then he ended up... But that was... Um, and then he retired as Prime Minister in April of 55. So he stayed... For four years. It's a full term, I would assume. Yeah. Because if his ministry Part of that term being paralyzed on half your body. (laughs) But, I mean, the... He ended up living until, what, 65? Until 65. He had a decade after to be able to live the good life. So, the thing is, is that's when they saw after World War II, the British Empire being disbanded and disbanded. Apparently he didn't look too kindly upon that just because he was probably old British yeah, and everything. Not saying that, yeah, it should have been disbanded and everything like that. But for him, it was one of those things about, do you think he had thoughts about like, I fought for this. Like I fought to maintain all this <laughs> and everything. And now it's just kind of being like returned. It's being returned back to the people uh-huh. who live there. God damn it. There's a a term that I heard that I thought was kind of fitting, and it sort of goes along the lines. It just sounds prettier than it was a different time, Mm -hmm. but a historic. Like, instead of just historic, there's like a historic. Mm -hmm. So, like, a historically, he lived in a time where he had just given everything that he could to try to keep England in. When you say a historic, you're supposed to put yourself into that mindset of what would have been socially acceptable and stuff back then. Yeah. Which it had to have been, because, like you say, he. Just literally put everything. He he pushed all his chips into the middle of the table to try to take or to try to beat Germany. And the fact that he did, now everybody's like, "Well, we need to start going our own separate ways." He's like, no, I gave everything that I could to make sure this stayed this way. So he, when he was knighted, the Queen actually offered him also the Duke of England. The title of Duke of England, which apparently is even way more prestigious than being knighted. It makes sense because you're the Duke of London. Does, oh, does sorry, that make you? Duke, sorry, Duke of London. Did I say Duke of England? Yeah. Offered him Duke of London. Doesn't that make it. you like a member of the uh, like royal family? Uh, I don't think it can. You can do that from a, like a biological thing by offering someone a title. I think it has to be like full on biological. Like she wanted to adopt him, which <laughs> actually, when he ends up dying. Only one other person has been provided this outside of the royal family. He is given a state funeral. Really? He is provided when he dies a state funeral. His body is interned at like Westminster or whatever for three really? days. Um, and then he is finally laid to rest at Oxfordshire, like near his family estate of whatever I named it earlier and everything. But yeah, he received a full on state funeral. Damn. Only one other, and it was another prime minister back in like. 1899 or something like that or 19 yeah 1899 was provided that i thought you were gonna say it was john lennon no no um but yeah that i mean bond so i mean people definitely knew what he had did for the country and everything like that um he also did you know won a nobel prize 
But he didn't win it for what you think that he would. He won it for literature, right? Yeah. So he didn't. He feel like he could have won the Nobel Peace Prize, maybe. I don't know if peace was his thing. Remember, he it wasn't. wasn't too, but he, he wasn't too keen on. Well, he wasn't too keen on making peace with people he knew couldn't be trusted to keep the peace. Yeah, but he created peace by defeating them. Yeah, he won it for literature, and I think that that's maybe what he would have preferred and everything, because he was alive when he won it. He just didn't wasn't able to go and accept the actual award. It was but, early on, wasn't it? I thought it was in like sixty three, maybe, and that's why he couldn't travel to do it. Maybe, but okay. It wasn't just for like he his you know documentary series or like his like coverage because he ended up writing another six part thing on World War II, like a super detailed and like really popularly received one. Um, but he also they said as part of him receiving the Nobel Prize in Literature, it was part of also his speech writing and being an orator, yeah. which would make sense because speeches are written word and everything. Um, but when you look at it from that perspective, yes, his speeches were were legendary. He is what I would say, probably without any sort of question, the ultimate most quotable person. Yeah. If you if you know his quotes, this isn't like Anchorman quotes or anything like that. Do you want to do his quotes before we get into his regiments? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll start off with my first one. Okay. If you're going through hell, keep going. Yeah, we wrote a goddamn country song about that. Didn't Jason Aldean write a country song about that? Oh, there's that song, <laughs> If You're Going Through. Yeah, that's what I'm Deep. saying. I think that's Blake Sheldon or some shit. Uh, my first one is never hold discussions with the monkey when the organ grinder's in the room. <laughs> like, never try to um, strike a deal with somebody who's not in complete power. Who's not in their own <laughs> capabilities. Yeah. Just a fucking, the weirdest thing that you could say, but it makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Like it, it totally fits the idea of what Churchill was. Um, all I can say is that I've taken more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me. <laughs> I don't know if that one's true for him. No, I think he won. Yeah, I mean, actually that's true. Yeah. He battled through that. Um, this one, I think, is probably the most poignant thing that he could have ever said that matters today. And I wish this was under our money instead of in God we trust. But the price of greatness is responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like, is that not the biggest allegory for this country of yeah. people being like, hey, we deserve these rights? And it's like, no, you're fucking responsible for those mm-hmm. rights. There's rules that we have set in place that you have to follow to be a good citizen in order to be great. And if we're the greatest country in the world, we got to fucking take some responsibility for what we yeah. have. Um, you have enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for something in your life. Yeah, I like that one a mm-hmm. lot. Um, this one is by far and away my favorite just because it it's so... I don't know. It just hits home with me. Uh, never stand when you can sit down. Never sit down when you can lie down. <laughs> like this dude, Works harder and harder. Yeah. And he totally, you know, over living his life with all the shit that he did, mm-hmm. he was one of those guys where he kept a schedule that we'll talk about. Oh, yeah. But he was just one of those dudes where, like, he had to steal every bit of rest that he could mm-hmm. because he was doing so much yeah. shit. That he wanted to make sure his that- hours and work work ways were so unorthodox <laughs> yeah. and everything. Um, courage is what it takes to stand up and speak. It's also what it takes to sit down and listen. And I think that's very applicable today. Is that people forget about that second part? 
Yeah, it's okay to know that you're not the one that has all the answers, that you can listen to something that makes more sense. And do you have any more? No. I have two more. Um, We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. I saw that literally on a billboard. It was like like coincidence out the ass. Literally within the last week, driving out of downtown, Yeah, I look up to the left, and there's a Winston Churchill quote, and it's that quote. Huh. It's, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. That's interesting. I know. I Timing's perfect. I was under the assumption, too, that um, Jimmy V was the guy that made the quote of never give up, never, never give up. Mm-hmm. That was Winston. Yeah. Um, and this last one, I'm prepared to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. <laughs> I love that one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, the infamous Winston Churchill schedule. That's where we get Winston Churchill Day from. It's a... I, Ate the same breakfast every morning. Yeah, a, a traditional English spread. English spread well, not which, traditional. In some regards, not traditional. Yeah, it was fried. <laughs> well, no, he also, his drink of choice during breakfast was not traditional English. Okay. Um. So he would wake up and spend like the first two hours, and he would wake up like seven, I think. I gotcha. I got, yeah. I got the, the full rundown of it. Okay, go ahead. So 7.30 in the morning. Wake up, remain in bed, eat breakfast, read newspapers, work, glass of whiskey and soda. 7.30 in the morning, he's banging out breakfast and a whiskey and soda while he's reading newspapers. Mm -hmm. 7.30 in the morning. Uh, Next check-in, 11 a.m. Yeah, they said he stayed in bed for up to two hours in the morning, (laughs) eating, doing his drinking, and catching up on all the papers. That was Guys just, gotta stay up to date. No more comfortable place to do that than in bed. Yeah. Why? Why are you standing? Mm-hmm. Why are you sitting in a chair? Just. But staying. he would have like his person that like took his dictions come in as soon as he and he would just be in his nightgown, sitting in bed eating and just be talking and having them take down stuff and taking his correspondence and all that stuff. So he was working. Yeah. He just knew how he worked best. He knew how to work from home very very mm-hmm. well. So eleven. So we're talking uh, two and a half hours later. He was out of bed. He would take a stroll around the garden to supervise his estate while drinking whiskey and sodas. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1,300 hours, so 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Multi-course lunch. He would have an imperial pint of champagne. Or wine. How A pint of, a pint of wine's a lot of wine. A like, lot of wine. That's not just a glass. That's a lot of wine. <laughs> when you're following that, when you're washing down whiskey and soda from 7.30 in the morning to wine till 1 o'clock in the afternoon... You're having yourself a day. Oh, and did you uh, miss the part about the cigars during breakfast, too? Oh, yeah. I know you touched on that. Yeah, he would just sit in bed just in his white linen sheets and just puff away. So just so if people don't know what a full English breakfast is, it sounds amazing. Yeah. It includes, you know, when you they're like, hey, do you want bacon sausage or whatever? No. With an English breakfast, you don't have to choose. It is sausage, bacon, eggs, toast, and perhaps some leftover steak from dinner the night before. And then he would enjoy that, his drink and cigars. He would have them fry it. Mm-hmm. So he would have them fry everything that they could. Beans this are man, also a part of that. This man lived to 90. Yeah. Yeah, maybe he holds the key to everything. Maybe, um, oh, what's the guy from Rolling Stones? Uh, Keith Richards. Maybe Keith Richards is somehow <laughs> shares the genetic bloodline of Winston Churchill and that just genetic predisposition to predisposition to just put up with shit. Everything that you can. All right. So after lunch, uh, after lunch at one fifteen thirty, so that would be three thirty in the afternoon, I believe. 
um, work study with a glass of cognac in his hand. I'm sure it wasn't just a glass. I'm sure there were many glasses. Uh, 1700 hours, five o'clock, he would have an hour and a half nap or a siesta. He had to have his nap, man. (laughs) And when people asked, why do you, first of all, weird ass time to take a nap. That's evening, close to bedtime. But the thing is, is he worked late. And so I don't know if it was the king that asked him. He's like, I've heard your work habits are kind of unusual. And he's, they're talking about times when they can meet. And he's like, well, what about five o'clock? He's like, I like to have a nap at five o'clock. He's like, why? He's like, well, I find that it reinvigorates me for my work in the evenings. It's like, I like to work quite late, you know. And yeah, he, uh, the man, he burned the candle at both ends. So after his siesta, um, 1830, uh, what is that? That's 6.30. Wake up, bath, and dress for dinner. So he didn't even pop into the bath to get ready until 6.30 at night. At least he was bathing. Yeah, that's true. Good bathing habits. Uh, 20 hundred hours, so we're looking at 10. He would have a lengthy dinner at 10 with guests and an imperial pint of champagne again. And then followed sometimes by one to two brandies (laughs) after. They were just dessert drinks. No. And you would think 10 o'clock dinner, that's got to be a pretty uh, big ordeal with as much champagne and din- or dessert drinks that he had. Midnight, work and study for more cognac. And then from 1 to 3 o'clock in the morning would be bedtime. So you can understand working from 3 and getting up at 7.30 in the morning every day. The guy needs to slip in a siesta. He's got to have a nap. Get tired. But he was, you know, after... He was never actively out of parliament, actually, until, like, even after he was the prime minister anymore, he kind of stayed around parliament just a little bit longer. He ended up serving... He needed 60, to scratch the itch. Yeah, like 62 years. He became, at some point, they call him the, the father of parliament or the father of the house, and it's the longest standing member of tenure with them, or in that position. So, yeah, he was in it all the way up until the end, and then finally... I don't know if we touched on this. You know, he died in 65, but it was actually due to another stroke. And then two weeks after that is when he passed. But I mean, talk about like, you know, people say Winston Churchill, they remember that four years during World War II, which they should, you know, such an impact during that time frame. But I mean, the life that this guy lived. It was a full 90 years. Oh, yeah. He lived multiple lifetimes just within that one. Just uh, everything that he did literarily, uh, don't know if that's a word, uh, politically. And then just during war times is crazy. I can honestly say that if someone else would have been in that role, I mean, if they would have been like Winston Churchill, maybe we get kind of the same result, but there's very few moments like in history where you need a specific person in a specific role at a specific time and all the stars align and him being in this role, it's not, you know, I don't take it lightly in saying this or say this without really meaning it. I feel like we're looking at a much different world. Yeah. If, if he's not the person in that world, if Britain falls and here's the thing is like, people are like, well, you know, even if Britain would have fall, we still could have beat Germany. Where are we going to set up shop at? Like you have to have a place. Like that's the whole point was when, because he was able to hold out at that point, he kept Britain open for us to use as a forward staging area to send all of our troops where they could be on land yeah. and then send them in for he invasion. Was, he so. was kind of our, our plug. Mm-hmm. All right, man. You got anything else? Great no. man. No, just a, a great man who I think 
uh, gets his due, but I think he, you know, deserves due for more than just that stretch of World War II. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening again, and uh, we'll see you next week. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod, and we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically hi. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.